Welcome to another episode of Knives Monroe versus the podcast. I'm Knives Monroe. How you guys doing? Hopefully you're doing well. Let's get right into it, shall we? I'm with my dear friend, Junior Molina. How you doing, man? I'm doing good. Just uh, glad you asked me to be part of this episode. You and Claire are tied on the Three Timers Club right here. So you're in good company, man. Okay. Thanks for coming on the show. This is the third time. And we got something special in store for the listeners, something we've never done before. We're going to break down a very special interview. The link will be in the podcast notes, but we're going to hear the entire interview. It's 55 minutes. It's George Lucas talking on Charlie Rose. And you just sent me this interview earlier today. So how about you set up what it is we're about to watch in the context? Okay, so... Yeah, so he was he was about to be honored at this like like this luncheon in Washington, and this was right before the new Star Wars film came out, and you can tell like Lucas is a little salty about about it because because uh, I mean he didn't like the film, so this is just kind of him him kind of just angry, and that's what makes it be so good, I think. What's interesting is that's exactly right. This is after Star Wars: The Force Awakens. And he sent me there to do press to kind of pass the baton to Disney <laughs> and give his blessings and his good graces. And I, I get the I suspect that this is kind of like this outward play that Disney kind of pressured him to do that. He was probably it was in their agreement, I would suppose, to go out, interface with the public and, and, and tip his hat Um. Let's just see how that goes. I'm going to be completely honest. George comes in hot. Without further ado, this is George Lucas being interviewed by Charlie Rose. Let's do this. You have every honor that a man could have. You've got almost Oscars. No. No Oscar. No Oscars. I got the Irving Award. Why are they giving you this award then if you don't have an Oscar? Already, as an interviewer, (laughs) off to a terrible start. Um, I was on the floor dying when I saw this. He's like, no, 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 I never had an Oscar. Maybe Star Wars has been nominated, but I I don't have an Oscar. Do you think he's salty about that? Oh, yeah, for sure. That's the funny thing. It's like everything he's ever, like, ever been interviewed or anytime he's ever asked, he's like, he's like, oh, I don't care. I never won. Like, it's it's for other people, but... You can tell, like, he was mad that he didn't win for graffiti, and he's mad he didn't win for Star Wars. Because, <laughs> like, everyone else won that worked on the film besides him. So that's just something that, that I, I liked. Contextually, people need to remember that the class of filmmakers that George came up with, Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, what, Brian De Palma? Is that true? Um, Francis, Francis Ford Coppola? Francis, yeah, Francis Ford Coppola, yeah. All have, and Steven Spielberg, of course, if I didn't mention him, um, all Academy Award winners mm-hmm. there's a bit uh, when i think it was spielberg coppola and lucas announcing best director in like 2006 or something that ends up going yep. to the departed and they're like all three of us have have a- academy awards and george is like um not all three of us so poor guy <laughs> i mean he's been the butt of the joke for a long time i mean he, this guy comes in hot as an interviewer this did not go according to plan i don't have anything I don't really have a lot of awards, to be very honest with you. I have the Irving Thalberg Award, and um, you know, and I get a lot of little awards. Yeah, uh, I've got two Emmys, but <laughs> I've never had an Academy Award. I've been nominated, but I've never won. 
I'm too uh, popular for that. Too popular? Ooh. Meaning what? They don't give Academy Awards to popular films. Salty or not salty? Uh, I think that's just what he believes. <laughs> how true How true uh, is that? When, what was the most popular film that was awarded Best Picture in the past 10 years? Literally on the last 10 years. Um, shoot, I don't even know. Uh, I guess La La Land maybe? That didn't win. It notoriously oh, yeah, did win. not win. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, then, shoot, the, I don't even know. Hmm. Yeah, they, they, don't, they don't award popular films. Let's look at it. Academy Award Best Picture, past ten years. I'm very curious. Because if we're going through history, like the, obviously the King speech, eh, the artist eh, Argo was that popular? Uh, sort of, I guess. Yeah. Twelve Years a Slave. Uh, nope. Birdman, not popular. Spotlight, that's a good movie, but what? Yeah. Moonlight, The Shape of Water. Uh, Green Book. Green Book and, was a little popular. And the yeah. okay, out of these nominations, what's the most popular? Parasite, Once Upon a Time, nineteen seventeen. Joker. Joker's the most popular. So, wow. If they give it, I mean, if George Lucas is right, you know, Joker as of this recording is not going to win. And I think he's going to be right. <laughs> so. I think he's just stating a fact. Maybe he's not salty after all. Are you proud of the fact yeah. that you make films that people want to go see? Yeah. I believe it's okay with you. Popular is okay with me. I think it's a very important part of society. And if you're making a work of art or a film or whatever and nobody sees it, I don't see where it does anybody any good. I tell you who thinks it does do people good is Francis. I mean, yes. Francis is making movies that satisfy one person. That's right. Him. But I'm not sure with society at large, it's helping much. You know? And of course, that's what I'm going to do now. I'm going to make movies that only I want to see and I want to do. I've always wanted to do that. I fell into popular movies by accident. I always disliked Hollywood theatrical movies. Something I wanted to ask you on this note, something I wanted to ask you, if you had to, because you know more about sports than I do, what sports athlete does George Lucas's career remind you of? Oh man, that's interesting. So they, they had to like become super duper popular quickly and then kind of never capitalize on it. I mean, they capitalize on it obviously, but in different ways, I guess maybe just because he's about to fight, but maybe Conor McGregor, right? Ooh. Hmm. That's an interesting, that's an interesting one. Because Connor very, came up very fast, had these huge fights, stepped away for like years, and just in MMA, he stepped away. And then, you know, obviously he's making a comeback now. Let's see if it's his prequels or if it's something else. But, but yeah, that's the only one I could maybe think of. Hmm. What kind what of about, uh, what about you? sports? I don't know if I could go there. Um, he kind of reminds me of Brett the Hitman Hart. Oh, going to wrestling. Okay. He's... he's Maybe the best there is, was, and will ever be. I mean, this guy, almost every big movie, is the audio is mixed at Skywalker Ranch. That's every huge. Visual effects is, he has, uh, is his visual effects company. Industrial Light and Magic, which did the, the awesome After Effects for The Irishman, right? Um, cutting mm -hmm. edge stuff. His name is everywhere. Um, George Lucas is ubiquitous with, you know... 
the zenith of filmmaking and he's reached the top. Um, I, I can see the Connor thing because Connor's reached the top as well. I just don't think George it has the bravado. Like, why doesn't George Lucas put his nuts on the table? Uh, you know, I think he's always been kind of a shy guy, and that's why him and Francis have always been kind of like a really good friendship because Francis is that guy who put his balls on the table, who said outlandish things, who does all the things. And Lucas is always like his best friend, who is just more of the genius but in the background, you know? I could see that. I mean, and Luke, and the thing is, the funny thing about Lucas is like it's a footnote, but he created Pixar. People forget that. That's true. That's very yeah. true. Another thing I was thinking about, and uh, now that I've said it, you'll be thinking about it when we hear this. Um, one thing that's kind of against George Lucas, as far as far as like his public image, and maybe how it was never in his favor with the studios, is is just how boring he kind of is oh yeah <laughs> he like for making some really cool iconography and aesthetics in in star wars he's he's not that cool of a guy he looks super corny and his opinions yeah. are really like almost inside jokery you know like um dry sarcastic kind of like a I guess the nerd you'd make fun of who was playing magic in the corner that always had a witty thing to say, but just it only for him and never really landed. You know what I mean? That's the vibe I got with George Lucas here too, is like he's dressed the same for the past 40 years. Yeah. Hasn't changed. <laughs> I, I think, I think a lot of, exactly. I think a lot of it has to do with like the, the business, like getting shit made, having the studio's, you know, swaying it your way is, is being likable or not giving a fuck if you're liked and, and doing what you want anyway, say like a, like a Steven Soderbergh. Yeah. So let's yeah. keep, let's keep playing this. I don't have anything to do with them. So, but you simply knew how to make them. No, I mean, I guess it was embedded in my DNA. It's, it's that particular thing, which is, I'm not sure whether it's a coincidence that some people like Steven and I grew up Steven. in the same environment. Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg. You know, we liked the movies. Same thing with Marty. There's a whole generation right there that were came of age in the 60s that grew up on movies. I didn't really grow up on movies, but it was a part of my life in terms of it wasn't you know, it, I came up at the beginning of television, and the whole idea of visual storytelling and that sort of thing was at the right moment. I got in there, and what we really, what I wanted to do, and what a lot of the people wanted to do, was simply make films that people liked and, and enlightened them, entertained them, um, and that's what we were in the business for. We liked movies. But the irony of this is that you are considered one of the most innovative filmmakers ever in well, the history of cinema. But the innovation part but. is because I, um, like, uh, I hate to say the word artist, but I will say the word artist. Uh, they, for thousands of years, were also the scientists, the engineers, and the artists. Because in order to accomplish certain works, especially in architecture, you have... What the fuck is he talking about right now? <laughs> No, it sounds, 
I was actually, I was actually going to say that's like one of my favorite insights of like Lucas. That's such a Lucasism is that like Lucas refuses to call himself an artist because he wants to be like a a, a like not a scientist, but you know what I mean, like an inventor, an, an innovator. Do you, and oh, okay. I think he's like, I think he's sort of compared himself to um, to like you know like Leonardo da Vinci or something. You know, like how da Vinci had to like create stuff and be an artist. I think Lucas saw himself in that way where he was just like, I wanted to make Star Wars. So I created this new camera where I get, I created this new CGI thing and yada, 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 you know? Yeah, that's interesting. I like that. It's true too. You know, like if you look at James Cameron, I mean, God knows how much technology he's made just to, te- just to paint his pictures. Yeah. And to, and to yeah, Lucas and Cam- low key Lucas go and under Cameron the ocean. The same plot in that way. I could see that. I could see that. It starts talking about architecture, and it's like, yeah, like obviously, Charlie, dumbass, don't you know? <laughs> My favorite thing about the interview is Charlie Rose is just like, no, kid, this is supposed to be a puppy. What are you doing? I know. <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> I know. This is one of the last high profile ones I think Rose did too before the Me Too oh, movement. Too he got canceled about yeah. maybe a year later. Yeah. Or two years later. On with the show. Push it because. You know, I mean, they sat with the um, the Domo in uh, in uh, Florence for hundreds of years because they couldn't figure out how to put the dome on it. And Brunelleschi, who did it, went and studied the um, the Pantheon and other places where they had big domes because they used to do it in Rome. But by the time they got the Renaissance, it was after the Dark Ages, and nobody knew how to do that stuff anymore. Okay, this is okay. I love George Lucas, <laughs> but he's a he's an old man territory right now. Oh, the whole interview is old man territory. This, this, this is uh, <laughs> like it reminds me of Abraham Simpson of like back in my day we we connected our we put our belts together with uh, electrical tape and it's just like what are you? That was a thought at the time. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like George, what? Like, <laughs> the context with Charlie Rose, just like, dude, I'm trying to put your ass over. Let me put you over. There's a great video um, called Star Wars, How It Was Saved in the Edit. Yeah. And it really in- illuminated to me that it's possible that Star Wars was a fluke. He goes on later to call American Graffiti a fluke. But Star Wars is kind of the ultimate fluke, and I don't know if I've ever heard him admit that. He kind of takes the credit. He's not afraid to take all the credit for Star Wars and what it accomplished. But, you know, if it wasn't for a couple of key things that went against George's vision, historically anyways, maybe Star Wars wouldn't have been the colossal iconoclast that it was. Um, And I wonder, like, do you think that George suffers with imposter syndrome a little bit and that's what that whole interview is about right because like lucas in the same interview he goes on to talk about like how he wants to be more of an artist again and be an experimental filmmaker again but he also has to wrestle with the fact that he changed hollywood and he made star wars and he made indiana jones and and like that's just who he is like and he says later on in the interview like i'm the star wars guy and, and I think there is an imposter, imposter syndrome with him just in the sense that he feels like he never really understood what made things, like what makes something popular. But he also mm. says in the interview he does. So, like, I, I don't know. That's what's kind of <laughs> beautiful about Lucas. Is he's everything and nothing at the same time. He, he deserves all the credit, but everything was a fluke. <laughs> 
So he had to actually invent the ratcheting uh, um, pulley in order to be able to get oxen to pull bricks up that high. So that's what you have done. You have that's been able to create new things. Charlie's a professional. No I could have done it before, and you had to do it on I, your own. Because I had a story to tell. Yeah. There is a gap between what is possible and where my vision is. I think it's possible that we would look at George Lucas as a society completely differently if he had the voice of Werner Herzog. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's like part of like the reason why it's so easy to make fun of Lucas is, is that voice is so iconic to me. Just the, oh, you know, just the, uh, you know, they got to get the, the rig right. <laughs> I mean, exactly. I when when Werner Herzog, pull, you know, uh, pulls a boat via tug rope over a mountain, like we, we elevate him, right, as the icon that he is. But with George, I mean, for some reason, he just sounds like a nerd. And I've had to fill that gap, which is what anybody does. You don't invent technology and then figure out what to do with it. You come up with an artistic problem, and then you have to invent the technology in order to accomplish it. Yeah, Charlie, stupid. So it's the opposite of what most people think it is, and any artist will tell you that. And art, on all levels, is just technology, <laughs> which is why it's, you know, people say, well, monkeys can do paintings. Well, they can't really. They can do... They can do scribbling. They can do like what my two-year-old does. But if you want to say, I want to uh, convey an emotion to another human being, that's something only human beings can do. Animals can do it by roaring in your face or biting your hand off, and that usually has an effect. <laughs> but to do it in a painting, to do it in a play or in a story, in, a, in, a, in poetry, or anything that's in the arts... You have to be a human being. So we've talked about artist, filmmaker, innovator, director, storyteller. Well, a director is just somebody who's Chinga. got a... Uh, uh, Take the compliment. ...making the world to be the way he wants it to be. Sort of narcissistic. That's you? All directors. They're no different. And you're a director. They, yeah, all directors are they're, they're, they're vaguely like emperors which is, Whoa. I want to build the society to, be, to reflect me and what I want. And the great thing about, you don't have to kill a lot of people and build a lot of stuff and spend a lot of money if you're a king and want to do that. It's good for society, yeah. obviously. But a director can do it with a lot less money and just say, I'm going to create a world where people can fly. So what does Star Wars and Indiana Jones say about the world you want to create? Well... Star Wars and Indiana Jones were basically put together, especially Star Wars, more than Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones was just done for fun, to entertain people. Uh, and there were some messages in there about, you know, uh, archaeology and also about what we believe in in terms of myths right, and that right. sort of thing. But the real one is Star Wars, and that was done in the same vein that um, uh, what I was saying about the the, the the patron creates the propaganda, and what I wanted to do was go back to some of the older propaganda, which was consistent through all of the societies. Okay, okay, hold on. The, the patron creates the propaganda. That's such, a, that's such a good line. That had to have been something that they edited out or, um, you know, for TV, or he said off mic. Um, George, 
is a bit of, I mean, doesn't this come off a little bit as revisionist to you? Uh, yeah. Yeah, so, somewhat, but, but what do you mean? I want to, like, do you happen to know around the, the general age range that George was when he wrote and directed Star Wars? Let's see, he came out in 1976, right? He went to USC in the late 60s. My guess is, like, he's probably, like, in, the, in his mid-20s. And so I'm, I'm curious to what that kid would say to current George right now about the motivation behind Star Wars. Hmm. Well, the thing about Lucas is he never really gave too many interviews, so you have to just kind of take his word with it when he got older. Uh, but who knows? I mean, if you've ever seen any of Lucas's student films, they are kind of bizarre, and they are, like, obsessed with, like, Where can I find technology. Those? I've never seen those. I just look, yeah, just look up George Lucas short, short film. He has like about three big ones that are all on YouTube. Ooh, uh, I, I will do that. He yeah. was th- he was thirty three years old when he made Star Wars. Okay, so that makes more sense. Yeah, because I was thinking, but the reason why I, I shot so low is because later on in the interview he says he was like in his twenties, and I was like that doesn't seem right, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Which is mythology, but to say what did they all believe? Because they were all. This propaganda was created independently. Yeah. And what is the, what are the things that they all actually believed? We're talking about relationships with your father, relationships with your society. So thoughtful. Your history, uh, relationships with the gods. All of this stuff is it's old, but they're psychological motifs that were created through storytelling, primarily oral storytelling, that explained what they believed in and who they believed in. So what I wanted to do is go back and find the psychological motifs that underlie that because those grow out of uh, a popularism and to say that not all, but a majority of people, boys, have a certain psychological relationship with their fathers. And that's been going on through history and trying to explain that to say, we know your darkest secret, and therefore you're part of us because we all know the same things. We know what you're thinking about your mother. We know what you think about your brother. We know what you think about your father, really. And those are the things that make people say, hey, uh, this is why we believe this stuff. And again, the the crudest part of that in terms of the uh, religious... Um, spiritual thing is some people have taken those ideas and then distorted them and you end up in a cult where they're using Whoa. the psychological tools to make you <laughs> Wait, adhere pause, to their pause. society. So, Lucas, like, like, I don't know what the heck Lucas is like, <laughs> talking about there and I love Lucas. So like, yeah. He starts like, he starts like talking about like these like, like myths, right? And that's, and that's the one thing that's been consistent forever is that that Star Wars was based off of like Joseph you know Campbell. the hero of a thousand faces mm-hmm. and and like the hero's journey and all that stuff. So I do believe him when he says that stuff. But then like I feel like Lucas is sometimes like so smart that he kind of gets dumb again because like he starts like talking about like cults and religious figures and I'm like what the heck like why is he going here <laughs> like like there's no context that he just kind of gets there and I know it makes sense to him, but like, he doesn't really like ever put anything like in the proper context, at least sometimes that I read his interviews, I hear his quotes about like stuff like that. Cause there's a great quote later on in the interview 
and of course, like Charlie Rose, like changed the subject because it got kind of sticky. Mm-hmm. Where he's like praising uh, the USSR's filmmaking. I remember that culture, yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, man, Lucas, what, what the heck are you doing? I, I, <laughs> like Charlie Rose <laughs> is just so confused. But what's really funny, like I would love to hang out with George for for a me, minute, me and too, the, wouldn't that be cool? I've often said it. it I've often said if I can interview one filmmaker, for the longest time, my answer was Francis, but I think it recently flipped to Lucas because I think Lucas just goes off the handle so much, and that's why I just got to want to ask him stuff. <laughs> one, one thing I'd ask him, first of all, like, when when you get at that, when you're a billionaire, I think you're you're in a bubble and you're inoculated from society and i think you're surrounded by a lot of yes men and a lot of people telling you that i think that's a great idea george let's let's go with it let's run with it just write the script and you know i with him like going off like what he said about like the russia thing and we'll get to that but um the truth is like you don't have to be in the system george to make whatever you want you don't like, this is like the Kanye, yeah. like, you know, you don't have the answer sway kind of thing. It's like, which eventually Kanye oh. did do what he needed to yeah. do. I just realized that Lucas and Kanye both have that same vibe. And just like, they can go off the handle, like, like in any second. And you're so right that like, like, I feel like Lucas and Kanye both suffer from this like same thing where they've got into the highest of highs and anything less than that. They see below them. That's so right. like, yes, Kanye could have gotten, done his fashion line with like no money and made his indie fashion line. But to him, he wanted to make high end art. That's you know? right. That's and yes, Lucas could have made his tone poems and experimental films and films with that with unconventional plot like he talks about. Mm-hmm. But Lucas wants his films to be watched by everyone. Ooh. And that's kind of what hurts him, you know, <laughs> just because like he's always so mad. Like I, this, he doesn't go into it in this interview, but. He had produced a, a sequel to American Graffiti called More American Graffiti, which is a great film. And, um, and you can tell it's like uniquely Lucas. And, uh, and the film bombed. And like that bothered him to this day. Like when I was watching the, the prequel DVDs or whatever, he was like, uh, only five people saw More American Graffiti. It made $30 million. And he's thinking about like how nobody saw it, you know? And that's like $30 million in like the 70s or 80s. I mean, you know what I mean? That's, that's a lot of money. I wonder where he gets that standard from. You know, I was thinking about this when, when I mentioned him and I compared him to to Brett, the hitman Hart. Unfortunately, Brett, his legacy during his prime, he's sandwiched between Hulk Hogan and Shawn Michaels. In the middle, the the white Oreo stuffing, there's Brett Hart. And that's got to suck. Like, George was sandwiched with Francis Ford Coppola in his fucking prime and Steven Spielberg making Jaws and E.T. and all these, everybody loved the, you know, the, the Amblin films, Close Encounters and so on. And George sadly has the one big one hit wonder. That's got to fuck with them. It's like kind of like Kanye where I, I don't think it's the same because Kanye almost exists in a vacuum, but he was in yeah, between sure. this transition between Jay-Z and Drake. And he had he had his era. He ran with the title for a while, but you know before him there was Jay, and after there's Drake. And one could make the argument it still is. And this, I think, there's a fight for relevance there. Let's go back to the interview. But I like what you said. And part of it is they have to keep it closed. And to them. And to them. And but in but it's the same thing. I mean, and again, you go through history. 
you know, and even though in most cases you had open societies, but they really weren't because, let's face it, you, got, you were going to get killed if you go outside the wall, so let's build a wall around the whole thing so we can defend ourselves. So they were self-fulfilling, you know, isolated humans. Now, I'm not going to go back and rewind this, but this is somehow about Indiana Jones and Star Wars. <laughs> Just throwing yeah. that out there. events. Because you wear, have worn all these hats, though, filmmaker, director, storyteller, writer, <laughs> uh, technological innovator, um, what do you want the first line of your obituary to say? That was a great dad. I respect that. Yeah. Yeah, and he, and, and he really means that, by the way. Like, he, he retired to, like, be a dad. He stepped away. And, uh, and I don't know, like... I guess to get into it for a little bit, because like he doesn't go into the backstory, but after his wife had left him, he was kind of like really emotionally heartbroken, and he just decided to like adopt kids and like Whoa. he really did step away from filmmaking for like the longest time, and and you know he just raised his kids on the Skywalker Ranch and everything. So, but was this? Yeah, so I think he this, really means uh, that. Yeah, was this in between Return of the Jedi and Phantom Menace? Yeah, because I think his wife left him. Right after Empire, if I remember correctly, which is the last one she co-edited, which is why some people believe she's like the real genius. But, uh, oh, oh. but then, and then, uh, yeah, and then he, he raised his kids and he adopted like, like a ridiculous amount of kids. Like I forget the number off the top of my head, but it's like four or five. But yeah, I'm going to throw you a curveball. Um, I think you tweeted recently, or maybe I, I didn't um, read it right, that you're of the opinion um, that what's more impressive i'm paraphrasing here um is is a better edit versus a better shot and i think you were talking about sam mendes's 1917 mm -hmm. george has yeah, some pretty right. good he has some pretty good shots well what would you say is like an inspired edit from him oh man the, the, well the thing so like obviously like a single edit can be as powerful as anything right uh the most famous one is the is the the candle being blown into the desert right uh in Lawrence of the Arabia but Lucas I think is really inspired by by like D.W. Griffith and um and uh Serge Einstein and like if you watch like specifically the ending of A New Hope I think that's the best edited sequence in action film history like the way he's able and it's what people still use as a template to this day it's true he has three major storylines going on or two I guess but like and he's editing back from Luke from Vader, from Han, you know, from, from the, uh, from the mission control. And it's just like this really inspired thing. And it all culminates whenever Han Solo like flies into the, uh, his thing to shoot Vader. And then he's like, Whoa! <laughs> and right. like, and then Luke destroys the Death Star. It's a, it's a really good edit. So that to me is like the pinnacle of like the, of editing, but like every single Star Wars film and every single Lucas film is in, incredibly edited. Like he was, he, if you read his, his, his biography, like, you can see that like, he loves editing more than anything. Like, um, he has this great thing about American Graffiti. Ron Howard is like, <clears throat> so I asked Lucas, like, how do you want me to read this line? And Lucas tells him, it doesn't matter because I can fix it in the edit. So Lucas is under the, the belief that, like, anything is fixable through the edit, and filmmaking is just an excuse to get to the edited room. I and I think that. a lot of filmmakers feel that way in some ways. And, you know, I, I do think you should direct the actors a little more, <laughs> but... I do like that idea of just like he 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 knows that he can he can find his final vision in the editing room. Mm -hmm. And I bring this up, and I respect your 
your retort uh, simply because um, what you stated earlier about his wife or ex-wife being the, the real genius behind the first two Star Wars. So um, wanted to know which which shots were sort of inspired, at, at least in your opinion. But it's a good answer. Well, I tried. <laughs> but do you consider yourself any of those things first? Writer, storyteller, filmmaker. I appreciate Charlie Rose. He's one of the best. Um, but I kind of feel he's like he's trying he's to, to sway. So hard. Yeah, he's trying to sway the interview. It's supposed to go one way. Um, am I wrong, or what, what's the network of Charlie Rose? It's not ABC. Is it CBS? I don't know. I know it's like BBC and, and over there, but um, oh, I think it's, it's PBS. probably like CBS. It's, it's PBS, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, PBS, I, I, yeah, I don't know PBS. where he's getting this pressure from, you know, um, but I can tell he's trying to sway the conversation. He's a professional. It's kind of what he's supposed to do, but I think he had George pegged as a more um, kind of like a – what's the word I'm looking for here? Like a – um, like one of the guys in media. Yeah, like but he he's not. The game he's a, a bit. he's like, an outsider. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, first <laughs> over, first as dad. I mean, I gave up directing in order to become a dad. You know, for fifteen years, directing. I just ran a company and was an innovator, but it was um, not doing what I really like to do, which is actually make movies. Because and, you wanted to be a dad. Because, yeah, I, I, and I never, it was one of those things where you don't expect it to happen. But once I was a dad, um, it was like a bolt of lightning struck me. And uh, I ended up getting divorced around that time. And I just decided, well, I think I'm just going to take care of my daughter. Because that seems like the right thing to do. You know. His, his body is singing with what he's saying, like his his posture, his um, nonverbal communication is agreeing with him. So I can tell he's being really earnest there. Yeah. And you can I tell the rest of the interview, he's right so uncomfortable after. talking about filmmaking and everything mm-hmm. else. But that one moment where mm-hmm. he is talking about becoming a dad is kind of like probably the, the, the most earnest he is throughout this whole interview. 100%. Return of the Jedi. I said I made all these movies. Uh, and... Uh, I'm not going to escape Star Wars. And uh, my central concern was my daughter. So I just said, I'm going to raise my daughter. And then uh, we adopted another daughter and then adopted another son. And it wasn't until like 15 years later that I actually said, okay, I'm going to go back now and make direct movies again. So it was very much, and it's in the meantime, I had developed a lot of technology to do things that I could not do when I was doing Star Wars. Because in, in Star Wars, because it's a science fiction film, it's a fantasy film, it pushes the limit, the technological limits of the medium. Science fiction, fantasy, those sorts of things. You really, there's many things can't be done, they just can't. And there's an equation ultimately, which is the, how popular is something, how much does it cost? And they subtract one for the other and decide whether they're going to do it or not. So a lot of the films, when I was doing Star Wars, right after Star Wars, they didn't have room for spectacular. They only had room for, you know, street movies. So, which is what I'd been doing before that. And so doing... Just to be clear, when he says street movies, I think he's thinking about 
something like American Graffiti or Francis Ford Coppola's The Outsiders. I think I think Coppola did that. Um, I think that's what he meant by street movies or West Side Story, even though that was a little earlier. But um, I think that's what he meant. Yeah, he's talking, sort of, yeah, he's talking about like movie. Yeah, yeah. Of, you know, an epic, uh, 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 a historical piece, science fiction, fantasy, any of those things, you just couldn't do it because they cost too much money. And technically, you couldn't accomplish it. Kennedy Center honoree. That's a big deal. What does it mean to you? Nothing. Um, well, I could be glib. <laughs> no, just be real. <laughs> uh, I'm sitting here with a guy who's got, who's the happiest he's probably ever been. Married, two-year-old daughter, um, all the money he'll ever need, sitting in this remarkable place where you live. Um, so you got everything. But here is a saying that you are really one of America's finest artists. What so just to you know, kind of set up the context, the context here, the Kennedy Center Honors, according to Wikipedia, is an annual honor given to those in the performing arts for their lifetime of contributions to American culture. So it's pretty general. The honors have been presented annually since 78. And it's a star-studded gala in Washington, D.C. The president is there. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. And George Lucas doesn't really give a shit. What does that mean to you that these people are going to honor you sitting next to the president at the Kennedy Center? Well, um, you know. Don't be glad. Be real. Well, I will be real. I'm not much into awards. It doesn't mean that much to me. Because... I've gone through this, and I know it's just a group of people get together and say, we're going to give you this award. And a lot of them, it's just basically you're there to draw eyeballs. Yeah, but there are awards and there are awards, uh, and I've got to believe that this means something to you. Well, it does mean something to me. What is it? I don't know. It's You know, again, I've got the... the <laughs> Medal of Arts. I've got the I Medal know. of Technology. I've got the. So it's you know, just another award. What the hell? You just give him another award. He'll show up <laughs> if you want him to, but he doesn't care. This is Charlie telling you the network. Look, I'm fucking trying here. <laughs> I'm giving it my <laughs> all. And Lucas, the whole time, it's like I don't know why Lucas is so disagreeable with that point of view. Like, like he's like, so it means nothing to you. No, it means something. Oh, what does it mean to you? Well, yeah, I guess nothing. <laughs> Yeah, he's like, I don't know. Well, yeah, it's, you know, I know it's about the TV show. It's not about me. This is not a big TV show. The well, Kennedy Center Honors as a television show doesn't do very well and shown in the middle of December. I know. So it's not about a TV show. It's not the Oscars. This is in Washington, you know, where all of Washington turns out. And it, in fact, selects only five people each year. And it's not based on what you've done that year or some one movie. It's based on what you have achieved in your career. Right. And all of a sudden, but, you know, and you're putting <laughs> you up in a pantheon of people that you really admire, yeah. like your friend Steven Spielberg. Okay? So going back to the Bret Hart thing, mentioning Steven Spielberg to George Lucas is like mentioning the heartbreak kid Shawn Michaels to Bret Hart. They, if only they could exist without each other. They've collaborated, you know, Indiana Jones, stuff like that, of course. But George and, Spiel, and Spielberg, there's such a rivalry there. Um, and it's, you know, who, who wins that rivalry in the, in the macro in your eyes? 
Well, so I got two things to say about this because I, I do love their friendship and competitiveness too. Uh, first thing is I think Spielberg is arguably the greatest filmmaker ever, right? He made the, the most popular films. He also made some of the most critically acclaimed films, and he made a lot of them. And I think, and as much as I love Lucas, I think Spielberg probably takes that. But the second thing, so Spielberg has always been kind of the outsider in, in terms of, like, the new Hollywood group. Mm-hmm. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola famously said, like, oh, you can't be a part of Zootrope because you're too much of a Hollywood guy. And this was before he made Jaws. Holy <laughs> shit. And, like, so Coppola, Coppola just sensed it. He's like, I don't like you, man. <laughs> and, so <he's> like, <laughs> and, um, and, and one of my favorite stories is whenever, so, so Spielberg couldn't get into any of the film school. He didn't get to UCLA and he didn't get into USC. Mm. The greatest, the greatest filmmaker arguably couldn't get into a film school. So, uh, he would go to the film uh, festivals though. And he saw George Lucas THX film and mm. he was so moved mm. by the short film that he, uh, he went to the back and met Lucas and said, like, hey, man, that was awesome. And it's something that's really important to Spielberg. But Lucas swears up and down he doesn't remember it. And I feel like that is such a beautiful way for that relationship to start, where Spielberg Whoa. loves Lucas and worships him. And, like, Lucas couldn't, get, couldn't care. And I think that's kind of I – think, I think Spielberg still loves Lucas. And I think Lucas has always kind of saw Spielberg as, like, this, like, weird – little brother that he always thought he was better than until he wasn't. And I think that goes back to your Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart thing. Cause at the end of the day, you know, those guys hated each other. There was a, an eight year, like no speaking to one another thing going on with those two, the sports guy, the professional wrestling guys. And, and when it came down to it, there was just, they didn't give a fuck about the awards, their legacy. Shawn wanted Brett to love him, And Brett wanted the respect from Shawn. And I, I sense that with Spielberg and George because listen to when he mentioned Spielberg and, and their competitiveness, listen to how eager he is for that validation and for the win, the, for the, win, for the dub um, as, compared to talking about awards and accolades and, and, and pr- prestige. He doesn't give a fuck. And, man, it's something so... Um, petty but also very real and these guys make movies about that you know um it's autobiographical in their in their work but uh let's get back to the interview give each other awards all the time francis and i give awards to each other all the time you know we're we're in a group obviously marty and i do the same thing where we all happen to be and you got to remember yes i hate to say this but there are thousands of award shows (laughs) every year So, you know, I'll take a few, a couple of the ones that are meaningful to me. Golly. Like the Kennedy Center owners. Those <laughs> are the ones that I will participate in, but I get a lot of other ones. Is there a competition at all between you and Stephen? Sure. What is it? That right there was a hard cut. Um, just, I was very blatant. They just didn't want, you know, they had to move, move it along. Yeah. Uh, who can do the better work? And how do you compare? And it's not better work in terms of, it's the oh, wow factor. If I can do something and Steve says, oh, wow, then I won. And he makes 10 times more movies than I do, so I have to say, oh, wow, a lot more than he does. 
But I don't resent how many times. It's just that I enjoy the fact that I can see a movie and he can kind of one-up me and do something that I said, gee, that's unbelievable. Well, let me tell you what he says about you. American Graffiti is one of the best films ever made. Yeah, but that's very easy to say. <laughs> because of what it was? <laughs> no, because he went, wow. Because he went, wow. Pause the video. Go, wow. the video. He went, I love that. He went, wow. He went, <laughs> no, but after the guy says that, Spielberg said, uh, it's, it's, the, uh, it's the greatest, one of the greatest films ever made, and Lucas goes, that's easy. He went, that's, oh, wow. <laughs> that's, I don't know why. That, that's like, I love that. <laughs> Yeah, he he cares about what Spielberg says, but at the same time, he was just like, "Meh, that's yeah. nothing." I mean, it's it's his. Uh, it's not his first film, actually. It's a sophomore effort, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and because his first feature film is THX, which he goes into a little bit in this interview. But I think Lucas is like, like he's kind of known for only two films, which is Star Wars, which is really six films, but you know, it's one. And then uh, American Graffiti. That's right. Which is like kind of the template for every high school film since Did, like Booksmart came out last year. And I would still argue it uses the template that American Graffiti created. Ooh, that's a good take, man. That's a, that's a really good take. I, I see that. I wouldn't have thought. I, I forget about American Graffiti. Um, simply because it, it was it's kind of like The Catcher in the Rye in that I, I watched it in high school. It was shown to me in high school, you know? So it has mm-hmm. so much baggage um, of that time for me. But I, I really need to go back and watch it as an adult because I'm older than, like, everybody in that movie <laughs> today. Yeah. How old American Graffiti? Well, because it was so different and exuberant. And, mm-hmm. Okay, go ahead. What else? Uh, <laughs> and had a lot of underpinnings of the kinds of things that um, a filmmaker wants to have in their movie, a lot of observations and sort of... Um, philosophical musings and it was in the guise of an entertainment film so most people didn't pay attention to that stuff but they knew it they knew it immediately you know it's very again critics have a tendency to be extremely glib and they you know they have to look at a movie a day or two movies a day and they just rattle off in an hour what their feelings are about it as a result you get a very surfacey kind of point of view or an ideological. Okay, I'm asking the filmmaker. I'm not asking critics. <laughs> Filmmakers, <laughs> I know how to make movies. I went to film school. I have a knack for it. I studied it very well and practiced, and I know what I'm doing. A lot of filmmakers uh, try, but on the technical, t- telling a story, how you put a story together, how you make it effective emotionally, I know how to do that. And part of it is I have talent for it okay so in a bit we're about to reach meme territory i've seen this quite a bit i uh, just want you to know if you can point it out part of it is i've worked okay. hard to create and figure out how to do it uh and uh i'm reasonably effective at it i've made a lot of movies as i tell people i've produced more movies that were failures than successes amen as a director <laughs> Uh, most of my films have been big successes, except for one. So, uh, and a couple of ones I've produced have been huge successes, but most of them haven't been. But I know that going in, I know what's going to work and what's not going to work. But I do like movies. I love movies. And I know a lot of movies aren't popular. 
And you can say that going in. One of the reasons I retired is so I could make movies that aren't popular. Because in the world we live in... Wait, what What does that mean? One of the reasons I retired was so I could make movies that are popular? So there, there's this, like... So there's, like, this, like, huge Lucas online community fan club that, that like, my friends and I are... Are, are the three and of the you in a group the, chat? <laughs> it's, it's the group chat, but, like, I guess to give a little bit of shout-out, it's, like, me, uh, JP, Neil, Andrew... Uh, Dylan, Kurt, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of us, and we all love George Lucas. Mm-hmm. And one of the big, uh, Nathan, he's like the biggest one. And one of the biggest arguments we always have <clears throat> is like, Lucas, does he have those art films that he talks about? I don't think he does. I don't think he's made anything. But like, I guess everyone wants to believe that he's making these art films that no one's watching. But I, I think he just kind of lies to himself. Like, he just, just so he can feel better about retiring. But like, he keeps saying, like, well, I'm going to do something cool, I'm going to do something small. But like I don't think he he either I don't think he wants to or he's, he's afraid to I, I don't know what it is but I'm not sure if he's actually making those small small films. What do you think? Do you th- oh you mean like off the radar? Yeah. Um, I think it's more like um, you know how the artist formerly known as Prince, rest in peace, wrote music for pop stars. You know, like he wrote yeah. "Nothing Compares for You" for what's her name, Sinead O'Connor. I think maybe he feels like responsible for doing the sound mixing for A Star Is Born and stuff like that. Oh, okay. Maybe he means that he's doing making this. movies because he's like this big shadowy figure, like Oz behind the scenes. But I don't think he means a you know George Lucas picture. Okay, that that actually makes sense now that you mention it because he has been on sets for like the last five years. Like he was on the Mandalorian set. He was on the Game of Thrones the last season, but, and he uh, helped Marty with the uh, CGI on The Irishman. So I guess in that way, he has been still involved. He just hasn't directed anything. Speaking of Marty, what would you say his success-failure ratio is? Mar- uh, uh, can I give you, like, so I have this, like, fun little theory about Marty and, and Lucas, and I don't know if they... I, I think they like each other. In fact, I know they like each other, but I think, uh, I think Lucas feels like he big brothers Marty a lot, even more so than Spielberg. Really? Because if you look at their films, what, what came out the same year, and like especially in the early days, so the same year Mean Street comes out, American Graffiti comes out, and which one is the highest grossing film of that year? American Graffiti. American Graffiti. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, so they both decide, let's make some retro films that about the films we loved. One of them was Star Wars and one of them was New York, um, New York, uh, New York, New York. Which one became the big hit? <laughs> Very <laughs> good. Wars. Very good. Yeah. 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 So let's like, flash forward to 1999 couple- where the Phantom Menace made a billion dollars at the box office, and you know, out the dead. bringing out the dead, which nobody's seen except me. <laughs> Nobody has seen it's a it. Good movie too. It's a great <laughs> yeah. movie. That's a good, I like that contrast. That's a really good contrast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, so I, I, I just, I, I, I love that little parallel they, they've had with each other's career. And, um, and, and, you know, this is probably the closest one Marty arguably won, but Gangs in New York and Attack of the Clones. Uh, Marty asked Lucas to be on set for, for, attack, uh, for uh, the, how did I just forget? Gangs of New York. Because that was like uh, Marty's first, like 
involvement with special effects. So, Whoa. so they've always been kind of like rivals in that little way. But yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good point. Yeah, I'm glad I'm, I was able to ask you that question. In the system we've created for ourselves in terms of it's a, a big industry, you cannot lose money. So the point is that you have to, you're forced to make a particular kind of movie. And I used to say this all the time when people, uh, you know, back when uh, Russia was the, the Union of Soviet Social Republic. Here it comes. And they'd say, oh, but aren't you so glad that you're in America? I said, well, I know a lot of Russian filmmakers. They have a lot more freedom than I have. All they have to do is be careful about criticizing the government. Otherwise, they can do anything and they so want. And so what do you have to do? You have to <laughs> adhere to a very narrow line of commercialism. And there's only certain... Wait, can, th- can you, can you pause <laughs> it right there? So. at the same time. <laughs> that triggered the both of us. I'll let you go first. So I find that quote so interesting and that, because it's so like out there like politically. Like He just like admit, admitted that maybe he's quasi... A communist, <laughs> but the second yeah. thing is that yeah, uh, I find I find that really interesting that he's comparing capitalism or commercialism with like Socialism. criticizing your government, yeah. right? Yeah. So what he, what he's saying is that like basically that like sure they're not allowed to like criticize the government, but we're not allowed to make something interesting <laughs> because then we can't make money. And I guess I, I find that kind of like I wish Charlie Rose could kind of press them press them on that, but I think Charlie Rose was like. Whoa, 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 we got to get out of here. But uh, I don't know. Yeah. What, do you, what do you think when you hear that? Well, two things. Number one, I, I and here, okay, I'm going to take um, a conservative side and a liberal side. The conservative side of me is, George, you live in the freest country in the goddamn world. The fuck you talking about? This country made you. How dare you? You don't know what you're talking about. You've clearly lost sight that you have more freedom in Russia to make the movies that you want to make. You're fucking crazy. Now, the liberal side of me is what, like you said, what he's really unearthing is the motif behind American propaganda, you know, which is, which is the Hollywood machine, which is toad our line. It has to be populist. It has to be macaroni and cheese and cotton candy, and it can't stay outside the palate of basic, you know, or we're not going to make your movie. And I think that's very personal. I think that's very personal. And I... I get that. As a guy who's been on YouTube for almost 13 years and only has 1,000 subscribers, why do I still do what I do? I'm not going to complain on, about the platform, but I understand that I'm not making stuff today that, that is popular, you know? Um, but I have the freedom to make whatever I want. I think, George, what, what I want to know is what do you want to make? It, You know, James Cameron has a big imagination. He makes whatever he wants. Scorsese gets to make whatever he wants, even if it takes him 30 years, but he gets to, you know, um, I'm sure he would amend that statement, you know, if he wanted to, he's going to get more into it in just a bit. And look, when I started in the seventies, it was like this, you know, I could say Russia was like this, but we were like this. You could do a certain kind of movie. And I flaunted that system. I mean, THX, my first film is definitely not a, an American film, and I shoved it in sideways. Francis helped me trick this movie. Yeah, you know, right, right. Nobody, they would have never let me make that movie if they knew what I was doing. Can George Lucas be George Lucas because uh, early on he got the, he owned the rights to make Star Wars. Well. You negotiated that 
Yeah. I mean, Coming out of the first film, yes. But the difference is... And therefore, is, it made you very rich and <laughs> made you very independent. So you didn't have to make movies because you had independence, and you had also built a great business. He's pushing well, on him. In addition him. to making He's films, leaning so on George. You could preach to anybody you wanted to preach to because you weren't dependent on anybody. Well, the, the issue is ultimately the reality of it, which is... Um, I'm in a unique blend of a practical person, pragmatic person, and a fantasy, completely daydreaming, you know, guy who's not very practical at all. So, and you combine those two. Well, I didn't, but the DNA, or we can say whatever, whatever force was at work there. To create. I, I, whoever I, created George Lucas gave him those two skills. Yes, huh. and, they're, and they're the opposites. One of them is a, you know, and I've always been that way. Francis, when we, when we started, we started Zoetrope and started making movies. Francis was very much, and it was odd because when we started, he was a Hollywood director. And I was this crazy kid doing art films. And I said, I'm never going to go into the theatrical film business. I only want to do art films. I'm going to do documentary films, documentaries, cinema verite, that sort of thing was just coming in. And I said, this is what I'm doing. I'm excited. Uh, my ambition then was ultimately to be Michael Moore. Yeah, and I was surprised to hear him say that. Yeah. And, you know, it caused trouble. Because that's what I, you know, again, I grew up in the 60s. I'm a 60s kind of guy. I always have been. And, uh, you know, I grew up in San Francisco, Bay Area. Do you think uh, George Lucas smokes weed, like hits the bong? Oh, 100%. <laughs> you you do believe that? Oh, uh, maybe I don't know. Is that actually. the only not, way to come so up sure with that, uh, a gungan? I thought about it for a sec. Hmm? Like, how else could you come up with a, a gungan as a species? That's true, and are all of that. <clears throat> and then also, he's such a, a proud like '60s kid that you would feel he would have to at least like experiment a little bit. But um, that might, going back to that Michael Moore thing, I find that really interesting because <clears throat> if there's something and like. That's kind of, so he says something later on in the interview where he talks about wanting to make a kid's film because he knew he could get to the kids and not so much the adults anymore, right? That's right, yeah. So I feel like Lucas is probably more of a political filmmaker than people are aware of. <laughs> like, just because his politics are so hidden and like cold, you know what I mean? Yeah, low but key. when he said I wanted to make films like Michael Moore, I do think he had this like, ambition to like make political films and like kind of like he was his wife or his ex-wife was a um was like an editor for the for like dnc films right the democratic national convention Ooh. and one of his first uh, collaborators I, I can't think of his name off the top of my head but he did uh uh he uh he, he did the camera work for for american graffiti uh he was like a really big time like leftist filmmaker in the sense that like like he he made this one film that left a really big mark on me it's called a uh kind of i can't think of it but it was just like the climax of the film ends at the dnc and like there's like a, a riot going on and he's filming inside the riot and i think lucas always wanted to be that like outrageous and and like uh rebel filmmaker and he just never got there and i think that's why he kind of mentioned michael moore because michael moore uh, made a career out of doing films like that, I guess. Hmm. 
Yeah, I don't know if George has that in him. I don't know if he's fascinated by human beings. Because to, hmm. to, to go into documentaries, you really have to be fascinated with either... I think he's more into infrastructure than he is um, anthropology. Is that how you say that? Yeah. Um, and, you know, you're right. You're right. Because, like, I think... Because, honestly, the thing about Star Wars that's maybe aged the best is, the, um, is like, the... How interested he is in the, in the lore of it. Like, how did he know the lore would become the biggest thing? And yet, he was really interested in all that stuff in the beginning. And I think that goes into what you were saying, that he was, he's more interested like, in how societies are built right. versus the people inside the societies, I guess. Yeah, and maybe fiction is more of, of, uh, of, a, of a wave he enjoys surfing more so than, than humans. Like, I respect Michael Moore. I really do, man. Uh, and I respect that how he crafts the story. There's something really, he, he, he draws a fine line, um, where it's almost, um, he's spinning lies almost, uh, gosh, it's really hard to tell, but, but, but he's also kind of like, a. now here I am talking about Michael Moore, but he's kind of like a, he's almost prophetic in that he knew where certain things were going when I remember, and I was one of them, even though I was all of 16, when we went into, when we went to go invade Iraq, a lot of people were like the media was trying to discount, uh, Michael Moore and say that he, you know, wasn't a patriot and all that. Cause he would say we had no business going to Iraq, but now look what history History favors him, is, I guess is what I'm saying. And I think he's more fascinated about human subjects than George could ever be. He, George doesn't strike me as someone that would go to a party to network. He doesn't even remember Steven Spielberg walking up to him, marking out, you know? Yeah, no, and that, that's totally true. I think um, I think whatever you want about more, Michael Moore's films, that he really, at the beginning, like his first film, Roger and Me, which I think is still maybe his best film is just like about this young dude who's like i'm gonna go find out why flint is like getting rid of every company that's right and it's just like it's kind of an interesting investigation i don't think lucas was ever that interested in figuring out why things stopped working you know <laughs> like he was just like interested in what's yeah. on building things on like what's the future that's like right. um like lucas was is is uh, he's all about that that uh, that idea of inventing the future, and that's and that's what makes him so great, in my opinion. <laughs> and he's done that. And you know, that's just that was my environment that I grew up in, and I was perfectly happy to do it. I did not want to make theatrical films. I was making kind of tone poems in school. I was winning awards. Francis and I moved to San Francisco because we didn't. Neither one of us liked the Hollywood environment. We started a company up here. And I got to take one of my student films and turn it into a feature, which was it was a, a yeah, but it was a tone poem. It was just right. a visual storytelling. You know, the 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 characters and the plot were not as important as the metaphor and the symbolism. And as a result, and the the emotional connection between the moving image and the audience. So. I did that, and obviously it, our company went bankrupt and I destroyed everything. But, it, <laughs> it, like, there's always a silver lining, you know. 
caused him to be forced to pay off the debts, which meant he had to go to the Godfather. He challenged me mm. as he was walking out the door. He says, stop doing this artsy-fartsy stuff. Yeah. Make a movie. Make Grow a up, man. Grow up. I dare up. you to make a comic. <laughs> and I said, well, I can do that. Yes. That's so big. I can do anything. You know, I'm in my 20s. I'm George Lucas. No, it's not, it has nothing to do with George no, Lucas. It has to do with I'm, I'm 23. I can do anything. You know, that's when you think it. By the time 30, you get that beaten out of you. But when you're young, you sort of think you can do anything. Very so true. Very true. And that's, that's so true. And that was successful. Wait, can that. you pause right there? Can, can you kind of talk about yourself? Oh, I think God. we both can agree with that so much. I mean, I'm not 30 yet, but you do kind of feel like it gets beaten out of you because both of us made feature films in our early 20s. Yeah. And it's like the, the idea of doing that now is just so daunting. And I no. think I, I just, I, there's nothing in the interview I agree with more. <laughs> not that <laughs> like I, your... not that, um, not that it was easy in my twenties, but you're sort, you're, you, you're not in your feelings and in your head and like your insecurities, like, I guess you're, you're, maybe you're so you're overcompensating so powerfully and you're peacocking and you think you have the world by the balls and you're going to go fail spectacularly when you're younger, when you're older, you're more conservative. And, and I think, uh, you, you tend to make safer choices and sort of like um, the sort of risk reversal, like low risk, high reward yield thing it just becomes like a more conservative pocket for some people. But you do get it beaten out of you because, because of time, you know, um, when you're 20, you know, you've been unchained for two years. When you're 30, you've taken a decade of dubs, you know, you got some scar tissue built and that's totally true. And I, I, I think it's, I must've missed, missed it the first time when he, when he was like, yeah, Francis fucked up our company, bankrupt us. And then, but he challenged <laughs> me to go make some popcorn films and I did. And then, and then he kind of low key took a little bit of credit with, for the Godfather because he had to go pay off the debts and stuff. So that what's it's, it's actually a relief to hear those two indie young bucks go out and create a company and fail and then say, okay, we got to go do something about this. And then, you know, George makes star Wars and Francis makes, um, the Godfather, the, the Godfather, uh, uh, you know, eventually, or you can even throw apocalypse now in there, you know, the big, I mean, talk about Americana, those two guys, you know, but they had, they had failed before that. And if it wasn't for those failures, maybe we, we wouldn't have had those. Oh, for sure. Like if, um, let's say if we lived in the alternative reality where THX doesn't bomb and, and uh, I want to say Francis Ford Coppola already had an eight picture deal with Warner brothers. And if, if THX did well, that means we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have gotten any Godfathers. Mm-hmm. We would have had George Lucas's apocalypse now instead. Ooh. And we would have, um, we would have just got all these weird indie films and I'm sure there would have been a great film, but they would, you know, the course of history would change. Like, can you imagine film without star Wars or Godfather? <laughs> oh my that's yeah that's impossible to think of um but history happened the way that it happened and, and it's it's a relief to to go back and think of those guys like that they were young and they were hungry and they did get the shit beat out of them it's good to hear that actually i relate to that man like it's a part of my brand essentially like this sort of um i'm like the first act of rocky still <laughs> I just haven't been in the arena with Apollo Creed yet, um, but I still feel like I'm 
I'm punching meat, like trying to trying to make ends meet and shit and do do some cool stuff. So, but I'm not 33 yet. I guess there's still mm-hmm. time on the board. Started me on a whole different train uh, to do again. When I did Star Wars, started Star Wars, I certainly didn't think it was going to be a hit. I didn't think American Graffiti was going to be a hit. I had no idea. I mean, in the beginning, American Graffiti was the studio hated the film so much they shelved it, and they said, "You can't. We're not going to even release this. Maybe we're going to see if we can release it as a movie of the week, but we can't release it in theaters. It's not that good." So that's where I was, and then I started working on Star Wars, and I, I was just doing it because I needed a job to pay, you know, to eat. And I wanted to do this kind of experimental-ish, in my mind, uh, idea about mythology. And I wonder how true that is. Take the films that I loved when <laughs> I was young, which was Republic serials, uh, and transform you know, the kind of movie I wanted to make into a very popular genre. And out of that came both Indiana Jones and Star Wars. But... That seems revisionist to me. You know, it was... I wanted to... I thought that was my last movie. First he says, you know, I didn't think it was going to be a hit, but I was setting out to try to make a hit. But I actually... You know what I mean? Like, I don't really... I don't know how much I believe that. I don't know how much, truthfully, he could recall, to be honest. That was 40 years ago. yeah, that and then like also he didn't really like do diaries, archives, stuff like Coppola. Like I think did write a lot and did kind of, and is probably more likely to remember stuff from a long time ago. Just because I feel like Francis is more of a romantic in that way, like like he really does cherish like his little moments. You know, where Lucas is like always thinking about the future. We're at the so halfway I, I mark. I, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. We're at, we're at the halfway mark. Are you still good on time? Yeah, yeah, I'm good. I'm great. Okay, cool. Sorry about that. Continue. Oh, no. So I, I totally agree with you that it's sort of revisionist because I do think he made American Graffiti to be a hit. And it, and it was a hit. Like, and that's what, like, he should have mentioned that. Like, mm-hmm. the studio did, didn't believe in it. But ultimately, it's because of that that the movie became what it is. And, like, and something he doesn't get into this in this uh, interview, uh, which is, like, <clears throat> him and Francis actually hated each other for a little bit after the company failed because mm-hmm. they both sort of in a weird way, blamed each other. And, uh, mm. and after Francis made The Godfather, uh, Lucas couldn't get American Graffiti made. And it would have been so easy for Francis to be like, mm. but instead Francis like, did him one last favor. It was like, I put my name on it so you can get it made. And that's how Lucas was able to get American Graffiti made ultimately. And then the other thing about that is whenever the film wasn't going to get released, Francis Ford Coppola, who just recently fell into money, was like I buy the movie rights from 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 um, whoever owned it at the time, oh. so I can distribute it myself because they weren't going to do anything with it. And that's when Lucas was like, "Oh wait a minute, Francis is still like the coolest guy ever." Oh, what a good <laughs> so friend! I, I never knew that. Guy. Yeah, <laughs> dude, that is awesome. I I never knew that. Man, Francis just went up so many points in my book right now. No, Francis was like, you can say whatever you want about him being an a hole or being whatever, but. He really is the ultimate, like, I stand by my guys no matter what. <laughs> For better or worse. Of this thing. Then I was going to go back to doing what I really wanted to do. And I said, um, you know, at least at the end I want to have done a, a old-fashioned movie. You know, a on sound stages with makeup people and, you know, uh, sets and, you know, yeah, do, do the thing. The, the, make one of those movies before I'm kicked out. 
And, you know, it, uh, the fluke of American Graffiti becoming a hit was like, oh, my God, now what? But I guess that'll be the only time that'll ever happen. So I got a hit. So I'll make this movie, which probably won't be a hit. But um, Star Wars. Yeah, Star Wars. But, you yeah. know, when you describe Star Wars, you say it's a space opera. It's not a science fiction film. You know, we have large dogs flying spaceships. And, you know, you describe it and people say, oh. Large you know, dogs. This guy's off, you know. He's, he's, and, uh, he's in his own world. And, and, of course, most of my friends are of the, where I was persuasion. I was further into the art world than they were. But I threw that all away after American Graffiti. I mean, gr- Graffiti was, again, I mean, nobody expected me to do a comedy based on THX. Yes. So I said, I can, and I'm not that funny a guy in real life. I'll show, I'll show Francis I can do a comedy. I'll show those guys. (laughs) Uh, And then, but then when I started to go into Star Wars, they said, why are you making a children's film? I said, well, because I think I can have more of an influence on people. And I think I can have things to say that I can actually influence kids, you know, adolescents, Hmm. 12-year-olds. And, um, you know, they're trying to make their way into the bigger world. Was there, like, marketing data yet? Like, who he was making Star Wars for? He was making them for 12-year-olds. Like, that template didn't really exist. Like, the blockbuster prior to, well, maybe Jaws, but prior to Star Wars, right? Like, once again, very uh, yeah. very revisionist to me. I think he, I think that's convenient for him to say now. I don't know how true that was at the time. Okay, can, can I make the argument that he, may, he might be being honest there? Of course. So he made Star Wars in the 70s, which is most famously when films were that the most, most gritty, right? <clears throat> yes. Like at the end of every 70s film, the main character dies for whatever reason. That's how every 70s film ends. Yeah. Even Rocky, which came out around the same time, Sylvester Stallone originally wanted that movie to end with Rocky during the fight. So when Lucas says he wanted to make something for kids, I believe that because if you watch Star Wars, it is nothing like anything else at that time in the sense that, like, it's very clean. It's a, there's, no, there's no language. There's no blood. And so I do think he was kind of making it for kids. And the only, like, proof of that that I have is that everything else that anyone else was making that, worked, that wasn't for kids was so obviously not for kids, like Jaws. Right. There's so much blood in that film. Right, taxi and driver. So, yeah. So I do believe that he, he was making that for kids, and I, I do think that's him being honest there a little bit. Okay, fair enough. And that's basically what mythology was, was to say, I'm saying, this is what we believe in, these are our rules, these are, this is what we are as a society. And we don't do that. The last time we were doing that was Westerns. And, of course, this was in the, the 70s, and the Westerns sort of, piddled out in the 50s. So it was like, we didn't have any national mythology. So I said, I want to try this and see if it works. And I'm just doing it, you know. Um, and it'd be fun, because, you know, I like spaceships, I like adventure, I like fun, I like all this stuff. So I'll do it. Um, but I figured that would be the last, I'll do it, I'll have done my thing. Then I got in trouble because the script got out too long, and then I had three scripts instead of one script, and then I had to <laughs> try to get them all finished. And yeah. you know, I got hooked into this tar baby, and I couldn't get out. And it was a while before I finally realized that no matter what happens, I'm never going to get out. I'm always going to be George Star Wars Lucas. We definitely got to pause there because that's that's a headline. That's a headline. Yeah. But he said it before. Isn't that true? Yeah, and I think 
I think that's kind of the... I don't know, like, there's this interview with Francis Ford Coppola after Lucas sold, um, sold Star Wars, and it's like a TMZ type of interview, so it's kind of ugly to watch, but the interviewer is like, hey, what do you think of Lucas selling Star Wars? Uh, do, you think it, do you think he sold it too soon? And then Coppola is like, I think it was time. And then he said something along the lines of, like, I feel like Star Wars wasted Lucas's potential. And... Ooh. It's something along those lines. He said something kind of brutal like that. And I kind of almost agree with that. I mean, I love Star Wars, so like I don't agree with it ultimately. But I do wish that Lucas did other stuff. But I think when he did Star Wars, he realized that like he could do nothing else. Like, I mean, he, he could have maybe, but like everything was going to be compared to Star Wars. Like even as big as Jaws was or E.T., they're like nothing compared to Star Wars, you know? <laughs> you know what's interesting? So, uh, that reminds me of something um i'm gonna go back to my my facebook memories uh i think i have a memory uh that reminds me of of something that i need to remember today let me see if i can pull it up oh i said this um january 14th 2015 i forgot who i was quoting i didn't come up with this it's easy to maintain your integrity when no one's offering to buy it out <laughs> One thing I, I tell my listeners is I'll, I'm never going to sell ads. I'm not going to do sponsorships and I'm not going to read ad reads and interrupt the interview. And I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to quote unquote pay the bills on this podcast. But if I ever did sell something, it would be like a book that I wrote or a movie that I'm trying to push of mine or whatever. Um, it's so easy for me to say, well, George, yeah, you made Star Wars, which was in theaters forever, and it was a blockbuster, and your merch, and like, why couldn't you just cash out then and walk away? But when you inherited the keys to the kingdom from the system that rejected him so heartedly before that, how could he... It was like when CM Punk was going to walk out in 2011, did the pipe bomb promo in Vegas, and then signed on for three more years, even though it killed him... How, how could you not, right? Um, in that moment when you're being offered the, the world, how do you walk away? Not everybody is Dave Chappelle that can do that. Yeah. And it's, it's an interesting thing. Like, I, I would have liked to see that timeline to see him do that. I don't see why he couldn't have had his cake and eat it too, you know, like cashed out, be the guy, like Bob Kane, the guy that created Batman. Like, why couldn't you be that? You created these characters forever walk away and then go tell your indie stories. I can't help but feel he didn't have it in him. And it's just more romantic for his own George Lucas mythology to paint this picture of like, I could have been a contender. <laughs> okay. So I, I'm always going to push him back a little bit. Cause I think, I think ultimately I like Lucas a lot more than you, but I think he's not only talking about commercially, he couldn't get out of Star Wars and he couldn't get out of Star Wars chatter, which is true. I think if he made anything else, everyone would be like, Oh, that's Star Wars guy. Uh, but, but secondly, I think when he says I couldn't get out of it, I think he meant internally he couldn't get out of it. Like he can only write Star Wars from after Star Wars because that's all he was interested in in a weird way. You know what I mean? Hmm. Mm. Like artistically, I think, I think he got way too into the, the, the mythology of it and he didn't want anyone else to have it. And he's like, I got to tell the story of like, of like Luke and now I got to tell the story of Luke's dad, how did Darth Vader become Darth Vader and all that stuff. Hmm, I see. And that's why ultimately, at, at the end, when he talks about like wanting to do the last trilogy, uh, I think now you have the Lucas that isn't 
so interested in that stuff anymore. And he's like, eh, I decided I couldn't do it anymore. So I do think he means it in two folds where he means it like, like I, I couldn't do anything else because Star Wars was so big. And also Star Wars was all I could think about after I did Star Wars. Do you think George Lucas is one of those guys that, you know, I'll compare myself. Sometimes I envy these young, good-looking YouTubers that make it at 16. Sometimes I envy them. And then I see Logan Paul make a video about the suicide forest in Japan, and I think, oh, thank God I ain't fucking young with all that success because <laughs> I would have done some stupid shit like that. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe not, but maybe. And a part of me is proud that, you know, I'm going to be 32 and I don't feel like, I mean, I feel like validated, but I don't feel like I've made it in a pop culture sense, obviously. And a part of me feels proud that if I'm like Louis CK where it happens in my forties or like at 39, maybe that's a good thing. Um, do you think George Lucas blew up too young, too early, peaked too soon kind of thing? Because now he can't he can't make the movies that a young man would make, a hungry young man. Yeah. Yeah, I get what you mean. So I don't know. Like I'm 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 always gonna be glad that Lucas did what he did, but I do I do think that if he didn't make Star Wars as soon as he did, like let's say well, do you know, there might be a reality out there where he was able to finish out his contract with, with uh Warner Brothers and do his Apocalypse Now film and and make his indie films before he blew up and made Star Wars. Like, that could have happened. It just didn't happen that way. And I, I do wish he made more feature films because, I mean, I'll be honest, like, I love Lucas the filmmaker. Like, I, American Graffiti is, like, one of my favorite movies. And even the stuff that he had more of a hands-on producing stuff in, like, they're pretty good stuff, like, pretty good movies, like, more American Graffiti and, and uh, Radio Land Murders and stuff like that. And, and, like, who knows? Because another thing that's very, like, known for Lucas fans and even Lucas haters is that Lucas hated directing, ultimately. So mm. I think, I do think he, he sort of means, sort of means what he says when he says like, oh, I, I couldn't do this anymore, yada, yada, yada. And, and I think if he would have just made his little tone poems and, and stuff like that, I'm, I'm not sure if anybody would have seen it. And, uh, and yeah, I'm, I don't know. <laughs> well, I have a lot to say, but I'm sure something else will, will trigger a different tangent. Yeah no matter how hard I try to be something else. Just think about the career. At, whenever you decide that there are no more movies to be made by George Lucas, and you look back at a body of work, are you going to say, Star Wars was my crowning achievement, cinematically? Cinematically, I'd say probably yes. Yes, okay. In what way is it not your crowning achievement? I don't know. Again, it's hard to... You know, I have a pretty low opinion of my movies. Bret Hart. So to me, um, <laughs> I've always said, well, these didn't really turn out the way I'd hoped they would. And, you know, and I can see all the flaws and I can see all the stuff. I mean, American Graffiti is the most fun movie I made uh, in terms of what I created. The most fun movie to work on was Indiana Jones because I didn't have to direct it. Yeah, Stephen. Yeah, I, I had the best director in the world. It turned out better. That was the one where everything went right, Yeah, which happens very rarely in real life. You know, but it just gets better and better and better, and you just can't believe how wonderful it turns out. Uh, the other ones you suffer through, and you think they're terrible, <laughs> and then people say, oh, they're great. 
but it's hard to get that they're actually terrible because I can see all the, mm. the the scotch tape and the rubber bands and everything holding it together. Um, and it was just particularly true of Star Wars f- number four because, you know, it barely got made. And mm. I was so disappointed about what my vision was and what it actually turned out to be. Uh, and I complained about it a lot during right after the movie when, you know, in the interviews you see it, I said, ah, it came yeah. out to be 35% of what I wanted and all this kind of stuff. But I did have a vision, but the, my vision was way beyond what was possible. And I did the best I could. And then after a lot of people said, well, this is the greatest movie of all time, you have to do that. I said, well, okay, maybe it's pretty good. And we'll live with that. Uh, and then part of it then was to continue the story. It was just a thing to finish the story. And then after that, I worked on the technology, and I said, well, gee, now I can tell the backstory because the backstory seems to have gotten lost. In when it was one movie, it was much easier to see the backstory of Darth Vader because it was all well, in one movie. But didn't you intend to, in the beginning, create uh, really three movies when you started, and and then you decided only to take one part of that life story? Yeah, I took the I took the first act exactly, and there then were three acts, and you took the first. Yeah, but then the first act didn't really work, so I said, okay, <laughs> what I'm going to have to do is take the ending of the third film and put it on the first film. You know, I, which you do. You've got a bunch of stuff sitting on your desk as you're creating it. So, well, let me take that and stick that in here and make it so. I wasn't worried that much about the sequels when I was actually making it because I have to make this the best film. Uh, you know, because I want this one to succeed and, and work. I believe that. Um, so then when I moved on to the other ones, I said, well, gee, you know, uh, Ben Kenobi is now dead. I killed him. That was a <laughs> unfortunate. Well, how am I going to fix that? And uh, what am I going to do about the fact that I already blew the Death Star up? And that's what the ending is. <laughs> and what, you know, and I hold on, hold the phone. I, I like that. I respect that. I must have missed this the first time. We don't have to go down this road because that's another podcast. But what he's talking about, these sort of, oh, what is it called in football? These audibles um, and these creative liberties with your own mythology that only exist in your head. When J.J. makes The Force Awakens, which is what this interview is supposed to be about, kind of. um, (laughs) He... There was no outline. There was no, this should happen in two and three. He just, it's just a setup. He just created a first act, which JJ's actually really good at. He's really good at setups. He did the pilot of Lost, walked away. Did the pilot of this other show, walked away. It's what he does. Um, And then Ryan Johnson came and undid everything, but to push the conflict further to um, surprise you, to subvert the, the genre and he got shit for it but george did it himself in the first star wars ever it's in the dna yeah subversion and and like blowing up your you know uh, opening with your closer and like you know all this stuff like he 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 knew it would make the first film better that's how you make things better it's in the dna of star wars yep because like what that says is that like he saw the best part the ultimate big bad guy in the series and he blew it up in the first film and and i love that because like you know everyone's so critical of everything star wars now and we talked about this in private sort of but that's what makes star wars fans so much fun is they're critical of everything (laughs) but you're so right when like star wars was built on like thoughts shaping everything together so you can't like be mad at anybody for thinking the new trilogy should be built that way too 
100%. The story stretched itself and moved around. You know, it is a creative process where you're kind of doing things and you maneuver through your imagination. But part of it was simply when I got down to some of the other movies, I was able to create an environment and a world that wasn't possible when I started the first one. So to me, a lot of the things were just technical or, you know, in the end, getting Yoda to do a sword fight, which I'd always wanted to do, but I could never do it because he was a Muppet. Uh, you said famously, <laughs> Flash Gordon was the inspiration and the Bible. Well, it wasn't the Bible by a long shot. It was the inspiration. But at the same time with Flash Gordon, it was better. I knew I wanted to make a movie based on those serials, but I didn't, you know, I wasn't gonna be, it wasn't going to be Flash Gordon. So I did try to get the rights to Flash Gordon, couldn't, but that was good, uh, because if I had, it would have set me off on a funny okay, thing. Because I realized after I didn't get it, I said, well, I really don't want Flash Gordon. I don't want to do any, I, I want a space opera ah. that's like Flash Gordon. But I, if I were making that movie, I would probably take Flash Gordon out of it, and I'd take all that stuff, Mongo and all that stuff. I don't want to do that stuff. Because what I really wanted to do was more on the lines of Star Wars and less on the lines of Flash Gordon. There is a similarity between the two, but there is definitely Very defensive, a, a George. difference in perspective about how they're doing. So that <laughs> sent me in the right direction of having to think up something completely new, but inspired by. But of course, inspired by westerns, and you know, people go through and say these are westerns. all the inspirations that were influenced Star Wars, and they are. Just like whether you're a writer. Whether no matter what you're a painter, and you can't talk about the influences without mentioning Akira Kurosawa. I mean, come on, Hidden Fortress is there. We all know it. I mean, shot for shot, it's there. So you got to give him. You got to. He had tipped the the westerns and the, the samurai films. I mean, yeah. a lightsaber is a fucking samurai sword. I mean, come on, we all we all know that. Uh, whether you're a politician, in theory, you have steeped yourself in the the genre you're working in, and you know all the various kinds of things. And you can pull the best parts of what you, you know, uh, of what you learned in theory, you know. But, you know, it works everywhere except it seems in politics because they are doomed to repeat themselves every few years because they do not listen to history. Where did the idea oh. of force come from? <laughs> the whole thing in Star Wars was to take, um, again, um, ideas, psychological ideas from... Social issues, political issues. I mean, where else do ideas come from? But okay, uh, <laughs> spiritual issues, and condense them down into a um, uh, an easy to tell story of those stories. The force basically came from uh, you know distilling all of the uh, religious beliefs, spiritual beliefs, go all around the world, all through time finding the similarities, and then creating a, an easy-to-deal-with hmm. uh, metaphor for what religion is. And the point was is that the, I mean, in the very beginning, when you have people worshiping rocks and deer, they called it life force. They called it the force. That's what it was. And so... Where did the name come from? It came from basically life force of what the more primitive religions believed in. 
and then you go through all the other religions, and they have the same thing. You know, it's all the same. You know, whether you believe in God, don't believe in God, believe in religion, don't believe in religion. The issue is that you either don't believe there's anything else out there, which is a little, I think, would be hard to live with at the same time. I mean, I believe something's out there. I just don't know what it is. I have no idea or what I dare to guess. But I do know the religions aren't based on it. They're human psychological needs that have been put together mostly to create a society. But you believe something's out there. Yeah. So here's what's interesting to me about Star Wars 2. I mean, to hear you talk about it, this was a very personal film. Yeah. Very. Well, all my films are personal because I didn't, I thought them up, I did them, and... Why does George Lucas hate himself? (laughs) That's that's the ultimate question. (laughs) Like, he he cringes and he winces anytime you mention him as the Star Wars guy. It's like Brett the Hitman Hart. You know, his legacy is more than the Montreal Screwjob, but if you're going to put Brett on an interview, that's what you're going to talk about. Even yeah, though he's even though about. he's more than that, he's bigger than that. His legacy is greater than that. He's left behind so much more storytelling bits, you know, here and there. I feel so bad for Lucas. He's such a uh, empathetic figure, um, but at the same time, like he is. The, if he was a character in Star Wars, he's the Emperor. Or like I said, he's Anakin. <laughs> well, that's the you know. Hmm. Why do you think that? Well. Because, like, when he came back after making the original trilogy, which broke every box office record imaginable, he wanted to tell the story of how a good person became the most evil dude in the universe. And I think in a weird way, Lucas saw himself as that. Like, he saw himself as an artist who changed the system in his mind for the worse. And that's why, like, Anakin is so angry that he has people telling him what to do. Much like Lucas, when he was younger, hated that the studio told him what to do. And Lucas probably could have changed Hollywood for the better after he made Star Wars. He could have done Francis Ford Coppola's dream of making filmmakers buy films by filmmakers for filmmakers. Mm. But instead he was like, nah, I'm going to get by. And I think, I think he kind of sees Anakin and himself in that way where Anakin did have the power to bring balance to the force and get rid of the evil and all that stuff. And maybe even change the Jedi, which is ultimately what he wanted to do, but he, he just didn't do it. And like, that's why, and, now this is just getting to Star Wars, but I, I actually am one of the few people that think the prequels make the original trilogy a little bit more powerful because at the end of Return of the Jedi, when, when uh, Vader goes, when Luke, or when Vader goes like, yada, 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 and then Luke goes like, I, I got to save you, Dad. And then Vader goes, you already have some. Like, it's so powerful to me now right. because like, because it's, all, it's the story of Lucas in a weird way. <laughs> like, like, Lucas like, should have been the guy that changed everything, but instead he like, you know, arguably made Hollywood a little worse. Yeah, for sure. Um, hmm. I don't like that beat in Return of the Jedi when they take off the helmet and you see this white, pale, Uncle Fester looking motherfucker. <laughs> I, I don't, I've never liked the idea of redeeming Anakin Skywalker. But he, is, he isn't redeemed. Redeemed. He just becomes, I guess, like, sort of redeemed. Like, this is where, like, people, I argue with people sometimes, because, like, 
everyone says like the, the story of Star Wars is now like redeeming Anakin. And I guess sort of, but to me it's more so about like the only thing that could have saved that saved like this guy from like never becoming who he was again was to seeing his son do what he couldn't do. His son was able to like not only combat evil with, with like his heart, he did it without falling the Jedi way, which is what Anakin was taught throughout the original trilogy. Anakin was always like, you got you to gotta cut off your emotions. You got to be this guy. You got to be that guy. Mm-hmm. And Luke, you know, he's angry as, as crap at the end. And he, like, he gets really mad whenever uh, Vader is like, I'm going to get your sister now. And then Luke's like, nah. And like, so I do agree with you. Like, if the, if the ending is supposed to just redeem Vader, the character, it's kind of a weak ending. But what I guess I'm arguing is the prequels kind of recontextualize mm-hmm. what that scene means mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. the character Anakin Skywalker. Yeah. Yeah. And I can see George kind of being that figure now, you know, this is a guy that was told you're supposed to be one way. You're supposed to be one way. You're supposed to be one way. And, uh, ended up creating an empire that arguably does not do the galaxy any good favors. And perhaps, you know, George letting go of star Wars, was the best thing he could have ever done for himself and Star Wars. And for people like you, it doesn't redeem him. Right. But it, it does, re- but it redeems Lucas to himself. Ooh. Maybe. Who knows? Poetic but, yeah, justice. Putting everything into the Star Wars box for Lucas. Oh, that's poetic justice. You could say, well, but Star Wars is just a, for a kiddies movie. I said, you know, the idea of making it for kids, the idea that it was a fun kiddie movie, all that stuff was very important to me. I like that sort of thing, and I like Star Wars. And I did it not because I thought it was going to make any money, because, as I say, in the end, we finished it, we showed it to the board of directors of Fox, and they hated it. And I had an ally at the head of the studio, and he fought for me and got it through there, but, you know, nobody thought it was going to be a hit, especially me. Okay, so personal film becomes a among other things, a blockbuster. Right. Well, and again, it was a second time because American Graffiti was a very personal film. And also, Star Wars became a cultural mainstay, as we've said. And here's what Steven said. He said, it is the moment in which the entire industry changed. Star Wars is the moment when the industry changed. Well, (laughs) it changed for the good and for the bad. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's again, when you invent things, well, you don't invent things. I don't know. But when you, when you bring new things into a society, you can either, it's like the balance of the force. You can either use it for good or you can use it for evil. And what happens when there's something new, people have a tendency to overdo it. They abuse it. Now, there were two things that got abused with Star Wars and still being abused. One, when Star Wars came out, everybody said, oh, it's a silly movie. It's just a a bunch of space battles and stuff. It's not real. There's nothing behind it. And I said, well, there is stuff behind it. It's not just a space battle. There's more to it than that. It's much, much more complicated than that. But nobody would listen. So they just, now it's simple. We like the spaceships. We like the stuff. So they said, fine. So the spaceships and the that part of the science fantasy, whatever, got terribly abused. And of course, everybody went out and made spaceship movies. And they were all 
horrible, and they all lost tons of money. Well, except Flight of the Navigator and Mac and Me, those were fucking lit. I just want to put that on wax. <laughs> and you say, well, you know, there's more to it than that. You can't just go out and do spaceships. And the other part was, at, was the, which is the technology, which is, oh, we'll just take this new technology. It's great. You know, especially when it came down later to digital technology where you can really do anything. And then people just abused it all over the place, which they did with color. They did with sound. Whenever there's a new tool, everybody goes crazy, and they forget the fact that there's actually a story, and that's the point. You're telling a story using tools. You're not using tools to tell a story. You understand that? I do. The, the point was the other thing that, that Get him, George. got abused, naturally in a capitalist society, especially in an American point of view, which is Whoa. the studios and everything said, well, wow, we can make a lot of money. This is a license to kill. This is like when he's like going after Disney they, a little bit. Here he comes. Go get him, George. Get him. Just simply, and of course, the only way you can really do that is not take chances. Only do something that's proven. Let's not do any. We've got to remember, Star Wars came from nowhere. American graffiti mm-hmm. came from nowhere. There was mm-hmm. nothing like it. Now, if you do anything, it's not a sequel or not a TV series. Get him, George. Or not, or it doesn't look like one. They won't do it. They say, we want something that so we know. So that's the downside of Star Wars. That's the downside of Star Wars. And it really shows an enormous lack of imagination and fear of creativity on the part of an industry. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, corporations are not known for, you know, maybe not Silicon Valley, but the old okay. institutions are not known for being risk. They're, they're known for being risk averse. And movies are not risk averse. Every single movie is a risk. A big risk. I like to say, you know, it's like Preach. the movie business is exactly like professional gambling. Except you hire the gambler. Usually some crazy kid with long hair who's like, I don't get this guy at all. You give him $100 million and you say, go to the tables and come back with $500 million. That is a risk. Now, the studios are going to think of it that way. They said, well, maybe if we, if we uh, uh, told him that he couldn't bet on red, maybe if we told him, because we did market research and we realized that red wasn't. So they tried to minimize their risk. Get him, George. Once you, and, of course, you're hiring the kid to be, <laughs> take risks, to be creative, to do things that have never been done before, never been tested. You have no idea whether they're going to work or not. That's completely the antithesis of what a big modern corporation is. You know, they want to test things 360 ways. You know, no, yeah. you just go so Hollywood is not like a big American corporation uh, because it'll just throw money away behind somebody and have him go or her go and figure out. But they don't know. They but they don't know how to do that because they're basically corporate types. They think some, the worst thing that happens when they think they know how to do it, then they start making yep. decisions that ensure that it's not going to work. But you're George Lucas. And this is what I would say if I was Charlie. You were ahead of your time with Star Wars. Um, have you been ahead of your time since then? Well, you know, I haven't directed a movie since then. I know that. Producing? I don't know. I was sort of ahead of my time with Red Tails. You know, an all-black film. 
but you, the only person who could have got that made something. Well, I, pay, I paid for it myself. Daniel I paid, Yellow said I, They wouldn't distribute it. They wouldn't yeah. make it. They wouldn't advertise because it. Because of racism or because of what? They just said, the market research says nobody will go to that movie. Okay. We got to talk about that. Um, yep. That's like, that's probably maybe the best part of the interview. Like That whole segment is like amazing, but that last part is really interesting because I really want to know what you think about that because I have my opinion about it, but what do you think of it? I mean, I was privileged to grow up with black faces, but not in my community on television, on MTV. Mm-hmm. Like, be, be, I grew up with, I know Bad Boys 3 is coming out, but I watched Bad Boys with my mom 100 times before I was 10 years old. I grew up with Eddie Murphy. I grew up with The Fresh, the Prince, Fresh Prince, you know? And, mm-hmm. and so I loved black faces. It wasn't anything new or weird to me. Like, I... I identified more with black culture because it was it was poor. It was it was big air quotes ghetto, right? And I came from the streets. And you know, this whole idea of black movies aren't profitable has totally been turned upside down, proven wrong, but there was there was a time in our timeline post 9/11 where no one believed in quote unquote black movies. Now you look at something like us made a fuckload of money, made like a hundred million dollars profit opening weekend, get out, mm-hmm. you know, a girl's trip, you know, black Panther. I could go through the whole list. I mean, it's, it's obvious dude, Marvel studios, Disney, Disney, they had no idea black Panther was going to be the fucking smash that it was. They didn't know. No I don't even did. think the and Russo brothers knew. I don't even think they knew because they shoe in black Panther in their last <laughs> two movies. Kind of like, Oh yep. fuck, we got to put, T'Challa in here. God damn, we had no idea, mm-hmm. you know? Um, no one knew. No one knew, and uh, still. Still? That's so strange. I understand. I, I could be wrong about this statistic. I want to say African Americans are 10% of, um, of American the ethnicity, the population. That's stunning because of how much they've contributed to the culture uh-huh. and how everything's been appropriated from black culture. Yeah. That's stunning. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the fact that George, when, when did red tails come out? Shoot. Like it came out right before he showed star Wars. So I think maybe like, and I could be wrong, but I think like 2012, 2011 range. Yeah. yeah. 20, 2012, um, ahead of his time, you know, had no business making this movie really. And um, he did it himself. He, he produced it himself. No one believed in it. And you know, ultimately it did fail, but I would say it failed because no one, no, no uh, distribution co- company believed in it, but it, history has proven that it probably would have made money if you marketed it the right way. I think if that were to come out today, it would make uh, over $100 million for sure. Oh, easy. Yeah. And it wouldn't cost it that much to make. Writer, the guy who wrote 12 Years a Slave wrote that movie. Like, come on. Like, <laughs> and now there's more black stars than ever. Yeah. Because now they yeah. have at-bats, you know? Um, mm-hmm. th- it's a shame. He, he but, could have uh, got a name director now. Because he correct. got a black director before that was even a thing, too. Like, I mean, obviously there was black directors, but he was one doing that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like Lucas, Lucas did it, and and I think if he would have made that movie now, like it would have been applauded more so now, which is maybe that's a whole other discussion. But I think Lucas just did it because he he wanted to do it. I think that's what kind of makes Lucas a little bit admirable, a little bit to me. Hmm. Yeah. No, that's a that's a bar what George said, and it's true. And he has the guts to say it. And he is the whitest motherfucker there is. <laughs> and he's wearing a flannel shirt in this interview. I mean, he is white. 
He's like a ghost. He looks like a ghost. There you go. And in Europe, <laughs> nobody will go see it. Market research said nobody would go to Star Wars. Market research may have said no one. Well, will. not, but they, but this one was. Okay. We know there is a certain now. I just want to random. I thought about this. John Boyega was completely wasted on in this Star Wars trilogy. Oh yeah, I know. That's mm-hmm. and that's the one thing I think Lucas has praised is that casting choice. And yeah, I agree. He was like a. He was he was wasted. Like, what, what was he even there for? Especially in the last two. Nothing. The and uh, the yeah. one I have a I have two complaints. One complaint we talked about off mic with the rise of Skywalker. Spoiler alerts. Everybody's seen it. Um, Chewbacca most famously was never given a medal, and at the end of Return mm-hmm. of the Jedi, and I believe, gosh, what's his name? Um, Carl Sagan made note of it on a on like Carson or something, saying. That, that was like his gripe with the movie. Like, oh, the Wookiee didn't get a medal at the end. He just was in this, he's a war fighter. Like, what the hell is that? And he gets one at the end of Rise of Skywalker. But Chewie celebrates the medal, and you and I were talking as a, as a multi-war vet. I just don't think he would do that. It's neither here nor there. Um, but yeah. also, John Boyega constantly being cucked, being held back while Ray's, you know, fighting, and he's just like literally just steps away from getting his balls smashed uh, with somebody in stiletto shoes, just watching somebody fuck his girlfriend. Like, I, I, what is he there for? He's, you know, I understand this subversion of he's this damsel in distress guy and whatever. But um, there's so much they could have done. He's he's a very two dimensional character, and that's a bummer. And it would have been pretty neat if him and Poe had an on screen kiss. I I agree with that. There's some people that say that, and I'm I'm one of them for sure. At least it would have made sense. But um, wasted like. Wasted and um, Billy D. Williams and you know in Rise of Skywalker is wasted too. Like poor thing, I felt so bad in every shot that he's in, where I just know the actor in real life is just in tremendous pain, doesn't want to do this. Like oof, sorry. They deserve better yeah. than that. They deserve better than and all black Star Wars. The gross. That's a three billion dollar movie right there. Oh yeah. For sure, and, and that, all and black Star Wars. It, yep. Just look at look at the look at Black Panther. It's like it's it's been proven, and like for whatever reason, studios even still now kind of ignore it. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, look at Creed, and 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 look at all you know these new uh, black voices that are coming out that are making money, man. So it's there. Tyler Perry keeps making money, uh, keeps making movies, and Kevin Hart's movies keep making money, and that's there's a reason for that. Over time. A lot of these issues that were just becoming, they were dimly aware of them, have become institutionalized. Now they know that movie will do well in France, this movie will do well in Denmark, China. this movie you can't do in Asia. And they got their markets, they know how much of the share they get, and they do their little analysis, and then they say, well, we all will not make the movie. It has nothing to do with what I do, which is make a movie, something that people can enjoy. Okay. It has nothing to do with that. I made money in spite of myself. And I think I made money because I didn't care. I didn't care whether I it was a hit or not a hit. I wanted to make this movie as a movie. And that's the thing that they won't do. And that they can't do it. It's not in their constitution to do that. You know, I have a fiduciary duty to come up with a thing. I got a 10% a year of my stockholders. That's why I would never go public. And that's why I said I'm not going to be beholden to anybody. And that's why even now with the company, that's when integrity. I sold it, one of the reasons I sold it was I was starting to make movies that were more personal 
and we're obviously losing a lot of money. And I said, I really can't do this much more because the company will be dragged down. And I had 2,000 employees, so I had people to think about. So I said, best way to handle this is to sell it and then take the money, put it in a, in a bank account. I call it my yacht because a lot of my friends have yachts. I said, I'm not going to buy a yacht, but I'll take the money that I would use to have a yacht, and I'll put it in a bank account, and I will use that to make movies that I know are experimental, that I have no way of knowing whether they'll work or not, but I want to see if they work. And that means I don't have to show them to an audience. I don't have to have people. So when are we going to see that movie? You're not. You might. <laughs> but you're in a world now where everything is, well, first of all, those movies, you know they don't make money. And you can't, like Red Tail's a perfect example. Not only does it not make money, you can't get anybody to distribute it. You can't get anybody to put any advertising money behind it. You can't, so it loses money no matter how you do it. So why in the world go through all that, get bad reviews, get all the you know, crazy people yelling and screaming at you? Why not just make the movie for yourself and your friends? And that's where you are in your life today. Yeah, I'm that's doing exactly what I wanted to do back when I started, but I'm going to learn things, and the things I learn... Possibly I'll, I'll pass on to other friends of mine and other people who are directors to say, you know, I didn't know you could do that. Because that's what directors do. You know, they learn from what all their peers are doing. You know, I'm doing this and I'm doing... You sort of see how they manipulate film, the, the, the visual image, moving image, and do things that have never been done before. And so that's what I want to do. Because in the, in the movie business, you cannot... Uh, take a risk, you cannot do something that doesn't work. You don't get a second chance. I've taken second chances, but I've just taken it to polish yeah. them. I but did. at the same time, you can't, there's no experimenting. Like, there's no experimenting in the movies. What you do is every day on the set, what you're doing has to be right. If it's not right, if, and you make the mistake enough, the film will fail. If the film fails, then the people lose their money, and uh, you know, and you yeah. usually don't okay. get another job. But, but are you telling me, and, and is this where you what you believe today, that in your life's experience, you know how to make a popular movie, mm -hmm. but that's just not what you want to do at right. this stage in your life? Yeah. Why would I? You don't need the money. I don't need the money. Uh, my interests have shifted to more mature things. I mean, I did the kids thing. I did it. To me, it's six films, and you know. Why do you say is. the kids thing? Well, it is a kids film. You know, I mean, adults like it. It's for everybody, obviously. But the kinds of movies I'm going to make now are much more demanding of an audience, and most of the audience won't have anything to do with it. And it's on subject matter that most people don't want to see movies about. So, but I do, and. You know, it's it's. Uh, I've made movies for me that I wanted to see, but I knew what they were. You know, I said, okay, this is this movie, this is this movie, this is this movie, and in producing films, where I was able to get other people to put their money in, um, studios. I wouldn't take it from real people. I'd only take it from corporations. Uh, Get him, George. You know, it's it's a little bit of the Robin Hood thing. <laughs> yes, I know. Let me just talk about the upcoming Star Wars. Charlie, let me get my shit in. <laughs> Let's get back to the point. <laughs> well, 
It's, um, you know, I made the decision to sell the company. Here it so comes. I made that decision because I looked at the future. I looked at the fact that I was going to have a baby. I looked at the fact that I was married. And I looked at the fact that I wanted to build a museum. And I looked at the fact that I wanted to make experimental films. So my life was going on a different track. I noticed the last few movies that I'd made were costing the company a lot of money. And I didn't think that was fair to the people that worked there or the company. And so um, I had made a decision to move ahead on the next Star Wars series, and we were starting to do that. So you were starting to make the next Star Wars. Yeah. You as director, filmmaker. So and we were working with a writer. It wasn't quite working out, but I was also, uh, you know, I was also stepping away a little bit to and turning things over to uh, Kathy Kennedy. And so um, what happened was Disney said, gee, or Bob Iger said, gee, if you really want to sell your company, if you're thinking about selling it, because we were talking about retirement and what are you going to do after all this kind of stuff. And he said, well, if you really want to sell it, you know, we're very interested. That's a trap. So that started that ball rolling. <laughs> and I knew from, you know, and I had the story treatments or, you know, outlines. And um, and we were about to, we were working on scripts. And um, so I sold it. But I knew when I sold it, I said, I've tried to uh, make movies where I step away to sort of Empire and uh, Return of the Jedi. Right, right. And after about a couple of weeks, I knew I couldn't do that. I had to stand over the shoulder of the director, help him, you know, whisper in his ear constantly, no, do this, do that, do that, you know, and, and be there to help guide it. And it was much harder than if I had just directed it myself. J.J. Abrams. J.J. Abrams. He's a good director and he's a good friend and all this sort of thing. But he's also a top director company, his own company, and all this other stuff. And Disney, uh, who was a little nervous, you know, there's, one of the issues was the first three movies had all kinds of... So I'm going to quote something from Bob Iger's book um, called <laughs> The Ride of a Lifetime, Lessons Learned from 15 Years as CEO of the Walt Disney Company. And here's a... Here's a blurb. <clears throat> George felt betrayed, and while this whole process would never have been easy for him, we'd gotten off to an unnecessarily rocky start. And the situation did not improve much. Upon seeing the completed film, The Force Awakens, Lucas didn't hide his disappointment. There's nothing new, he said. In each of the films in the original trilogy, it was important to him to present new ideas. New worlds, new stories, new characters, and new technologies. In this one, he said, there weren't enough visual or technical leaps forward. Iger adds that Lucas wasn't wrong, but he also wasn't appreciating the pressure we were under <laughs> to give ardent fans a film that quintessentially felt like a Star Wars film. We'd intentionally created a world that was visually and tonally connected to the earlier films, to not stray too far from what people loved and expected, and George was criticizing us for the very thing that we were trying to do. Um, mm -hmm. Force Awakens went on to make $2 billion, um, but 
the fact that Bob Iger would put that in his book is is a bit of a slap in the face to to George Lucas. You know that he that he felt betrayed. He didn't hide his disappointment. He wanted this. We said we were going to do it, and we didn't. I don't blame him for being you know salty for that, but that sounded like that was a handshake deal, and George Lucas should have known better. Yeah, and I think Lucas, for whatever reason, trusted Disney, and uh, in his in George Lucas' autobiography, he does mention Iger early on as someone he likes. So I think that's part of the reason why he sold it to him, and obviously he didn't think that he would just be shut out of the writers' room like he was. And I think, and this is just like. <clears throat> my maybe hot take or whatever, but I think the new trilogy suffers from a lack of vision. And I think Lucas, and I think his haters, and obviously people that are fans of him can agree on one thing, is that Lucas is, is sort of a visionary mm-hmm. in the sense that like, he would have made something interesting in those new films that were sorely missing, in my opinion. Like even the quote-unquote best one, The Last Jedi, is playing off of stuff from the, from the prequel trilogy, in my opinion. And like, and I just wish Disney wasn't so afraid of making something fun. Like it's Star Wars. It would have made a billion dollars anyways. Like, like why did you want to make this, the, the greatest film series into Marvel? Like it made no sense to me. And that's, that's what Disney wanted to do. And I think uh, Lucas has the right to be salty. And I can, and I see that quote in the Iger book as like him doing a victory lap saying I was right ultimately. Mm-hmm. But no, no, no. That's History right. has proven you wrong because the next Star Wars one made half of what the first one made and the newest one made less than that. Yeah. So like in the end, you should have maybe listened to the, the, uh, the artist. <laughs> hmm. It's really interesting. Have you seen the Mandalorian? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I've seen the first couple of episodes. I like it, but, uh, you know, it ends strong. The last three episodes are really good. It's, it feels I don't want to get on a tangent of Disney Plus. I happen to think it's very weak out of all the OTT platforms. I think it's the weakest in terms of its IP. You would think with Star Wars and Marvel and Nat Geo um, that it would it, it would be more robust, but it's not. And granted, I know Disney owns Hulu, and so they're going to bring the FX. Okay, I get I get all that. But as far as original content, you know, Mandalorian stands out. It's like the only hit on the platform. And I think it will be the only hit until season two comes out. But um, it's inspired and it goes back to like old George Lucas sort of ethos. And it was, I think, more ubiquitously um, acclaimed across the board than, than The Rise of Skywalker and The Last Jedi, which were pretty divisive, um, polarizing films. Um, and you said that, that George was on set for the Mandalorian, do you see what? What is your what are your thoughts on on John Favreau carrying the potential torch for Star Wars in the future? Well, so Lucas likes John Favreau. It's been kind of proven. Uh, he's done a lot of things with him, and I think the respect is mutual. So I think since it was a Disney Plus TV show instead of a movie, there was a little bit more creative freedom. And I think I think Favreau did something more in the spirit of Star Wars than the new trilogy was. The new trilogy, as Lucas says later in the interview, is retro. And I think people felt it and people knew it. Yeah. You know, and, and we got into this great conversation, probably one of the, my favorites we've had uh, privately, where we talked about like how Star Wars fans 
despite being the most annoying, the most bratty fan base, are kind of this lost breed of like fan bases that aren't afraid of being critical of like the thing. You know what I mean? Like if you look at uh, Marvel fans, the DC fans, they're always going to st- toe the company line. You know, they, they're going to be they like sp- they bend over and like, spread oh, their butt cheeks. <clears throat> yeah, mm-hmm. but Star Wars fans, they were given this love letter to the original trilogy, and they were like. Mm, wait, not so fast. <laughs> like, let me right. criticize this and what you did wrong. And, and, I, and I really think Iger and Disney didn't expect that. I think they thought they would, they would get loved and admiration, and they did by the critics. The first two films are, like, better reviewed than any of the original trilogy. But, um, you know, they just didn't know that Star Wars fans are a little kooky. <laughs> That's just how it is. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, they, they're not just going to take... Um, they they want nutrients in their food. You know, they're not just going to eat the cotton candy and say, "Please, sir, can I have some more?" Like the Marvel fans, who claim that Ant Man and Doctor Strange are essential to something. I don't know. Those movies by themselves are basic as fuck, and they're fine. But they don't offer. As soon as you walk away, you you. Oh, I'll give you a great example. And I know it's kind of like picking on a picking on a small child but uh captain marvel saw it don't remember anything i don't remember anything that's all that's all marvel films that's all of them just to be and i say that one because i, I think remember. it was like one of the most recent ones and i don't remember jack shit yeah like the only marvel films that have left any type of impact on me are thor ragnarok <clears throat> and black panther and those two films were headed by directors that were probably given a small box playing that's right but they played in it a lot. And the things that are forgettable about that, those films are the things that, you know, Disney was in charge of, like the action, right. the, uh, the beats that it had to follow yeah. the, the, uh, the, Cameos. the structure, you, yeah. you know? Yeah. But what worked for me, so Thor Ragnarok worked for me in the sense that it's visually the best Marvel film, I think in terms of just the colors, it's fun. The actors look yeah. like they're actually having fun in there. That's right. Not like this forced fun that, all the other Marvel films have. And then Black Panther, I think, works for me just because it's about something deeper. It's the only Marvel film that you could dig a little deeper in and find some interesting things to look at. Like, oh, wait a minute, is this movie about this and that? And like, I don't know. So I really hate what Disney has done with Hollywood films and they are Hollywood now, you know, like, unfortunately. And that's why I'm glad that as the last F.U., Lucas got the last laugh over Iger. Not not in the real way, because in the end, Iger owns Star Wars, but in the sense that, like, he didn't make this, like, trillion-dollar franchise that he thought that, uh, that he thought the, uh, the Star Wars films are going to be. Instead, he, got, he probably got burned a little bit, and he would probably admit that. I think so. Obviously, they made good on their investment, and it's gonna continu- they're going to continue to squeeze that lemon dry. I don't care about the rumors of the... Game of Thrones duo, if their trilogy got canceled, I want to say Ryan Johnson's trilogy got canceled. I want to say they were making, oh, there are they are making an Obi Wan Kenobi Ewan McGregor vehicle TV show. Okay, yeah. So you know they're still moving forward. Um, you know we, but not I, as not, not as much as they were though. They wanted to do two movies a year like Marvel, that's too and that much. just wasn't going to work for Star Wars. Yeah, Star Wars is precious, and they didn't care about that. Mm-hmm. And they and they truly have no 
respect for its audience, which like we stated are vocal and they're not just going to bend over and ask to have their hair pulled back. Kinds of issues. They looked at the stories and they said, we want to make something for the fans. So I said, all I want to do is tell a story of what happened. You know, it started here and it went there. And it's all about generations and it's about, you know, the issues of fathers and sons and grandfathers. And it's a family soap opera. I mean, ultimately, I mean, space, we call it space opera, but it, people don't realize it's actually a soap opera. Yeah. And it's all about family problems and that kind of, it's not about spaceships. So they decided they didn't want to use those stories. They decided they were going to go do their own thing, and so I decided, fine. But basically, I'm not going to try to... They weren't that keen to have me involved anyway, but at the same time, I said, I'm not going to... If I get in there, I'm just going to cause trouble because they're not going to do what I want them to do. So, and I don't have the control to do that anymore, and all I would do is muck everything up. So I said, okay, I will go my way, and I'll let them go their way. And it really does come down to uh, a simple rule of life, which is when you break up with somebody, Ooh. the first rule is no phone calls. The second <laughs> rule, you don't go over to their house and drive by to see what they're doing. Yes. The third one is you don't show up at their coffee shop or the things where you're going to burn it. You just say, no, gone, history, I'm moving forward. Because every time you do, and you know we all learn this from experience, every time you do something like that, you're opening the wound again. And it just makes it harder for you. You have to put it behind you. And it's a very, very... Why does George Lucas hate himself? <laughs> that's, that's on this interview. Maybe you think. <laughs> and that, that's especially true because, you know, he probably had a nasty divorce with, with Marsha. Marsha. Very, very hard thing to do. But you have to just cut it off and say, okay, end the ballgame. I got to move on. And everything in your body says don't. You can't. These are my kids. <laughs> So, all those Star Wars films. All the Star Wars films. They were your kids. Yeah, well, they are. My, you know, I, I loved them. I created them. Um, I'm very intimately involved in them. And obviously to and sell them And you sold them. I sold them to the That's right. white slavers that take these things. And, oh. And, uh, <laughs> okay, but, but, I mean, but, but having said all that and having <laughs> talked to you for the last and, and known you for a, a while. And, it, and everything in We got to hear that again. Don't. You can't. These are my kids. So all those Star Wars films. All the Star Wars films. They were your kids. Yeah. Well, they are. Right. You know, I I loved them. I created them. Um, I'm very intimately involved in them. And obviously to and sell you them sold off, them. I sold them to the white slavers that take these things and and. Uh, Pause. So, <laughs> but but, so I mean, but, but that's that, that's what got all the headlines. That's what got him in trouble. That's what got him kicked off of every feature set until yeah. the Mandalorian. And he's right. <laughs> and that's what makes it so, so painful for Disney. <laughs> I guess I would ask George um, if he regrets it. I know. I wonder that, too. I really wonder that, too. Because it seems like he does. But I also think he didn't want to do Star Wars. So who knows? Having said all that and having talked to you for the last and, and known you for a, a while... And admired you. I mean, it must hurt you. Well, no, These I, are, it, it's your family. It's no, the I, last story. But, but, it's but, your but, story. But it's end, you. But it's, I knew there's three more stories. And I knew that was going to probably take, you know, to do it right would take about 10 years. And I said, I'm 70. 
Disney thought, eh, we'll do it in three. I don't yeah, know whether we, we do it in two. You know, every 10 years, the odds get less. And uh, so I said, and I'm not ready to do that because I want to do these other things. So I have to make the decision on my own that it's time for me to move on. So it wasn't like they were taken away from me or they were thinking. And they felt they knew, you know, they wanted to do a retro movie. I don't like that. I like I, every movie I worked very hard to make them different. I make them completely different with, you know, different planets, with different spaceships, with different, you know, to make it new. So are you at peace with this? Yeah. As well, much they, as you can be. They, they edited his anti-Force Awakens um, rant there. Yeah. You can tell. <laughs> yeah. No, I was, I said, look, I'm fine. Then you get to the thing, which is another thing that I'd been through. Fortunately, I'm old enough to have been through all this stuff before. Uh, and that one is to say, I had to do it. And then you do end up with this thing, which is, you know, you've got to live with it and people are going to talk about it and all that kind of if I was Charlie Rose, I would call this interview a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> I would say we, we missed the mark. This was supposed to sell the movie. This be was supposed puppy. to be a passing of the baton, a passing of the torch, a good a blessing of sorts. And uh, it obviously wasn't. We're, we're winding it down here. Um, I'm going to let this interview play out, and then we'll close the show, because I know you're an hour ahead of me. You probably work at the crack of dawn tomorrow, so let's close this it's fucker. Not, it's like talking about your divorce or something. It's just it's awkward, but it's not painful. Do you have within you something uh, that's a series of small personal films, you've said? That's what right. you want to do. No more great Star Wars kind of adventure for George Lucas. No, no. That's over. These are little tiny movies that are experimental. They aren't using the same structure. Uh, I'm going back to where American Graffiti was, where or THX, where I completely changed the way you tell a story in using cinema. It's back. I've produced a few films that were like this, but they weren't like what I would do. But they were using the visual style rather than. Yeah. The book. Here's what's exciting, George. What's exciting is that all of the stuff that's within you that made all of this, whether it's THX or American Graffiti or Star Wars or all that you contributed to Indiana Jones, it's all within you. It's who you are. And you can apply that in any way. Because that, in the end, is what you brought. It is your ideas and your insight is what you brought to film. And at the same time, I've been fascinated with the medium and I've been fascinated with the, the true nature of the medium, which is very different. It's been used more as a recording medium than as a art form unto itself. And that's where the kind of movies that I made that are sort of, they call, they call them tone poems. But in the beginning, like in Russia, there was, this was a whole movement of how do you tell visual stories um, basically without dialogue, without uh, you know, all the things that you use to tell a story and you just use the film itself. It's kind of esoteric. I'm going to try to take it. It hasn't come much further in 100 Mm -hmm. years. I'm going to try to take it into something that is more emotionally powerful than some of the, most of the stuff we've done up to this point. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. <laughs> what a fucking cock. What a fucking cock. He's like, kind of like, eh, I'm contractually obligated. You know, uh, there's obviously Battleship Potemkin motifs in the original Star Wars, and he 
went back to the sort of Russian ideology. Obviously, he was probably a Sergei yeah. Eisenstein kind of guy. I've never seen Battleship Potemkin, which Claire's like, you should watch it. I'm like, dude, no, there's just some movies. It's too late. But for me, I'm going to get shit for that. But um, yeah, man, let's close this out. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I was fascinated by this interview. It, I just... I you know maybe I've I've seen um gosh I forgot who who made it but the the people versus George Lucas I've seen that movie doesn't really paint George in the most positive light um but I don't I've never seen like an actual interview with him before really I know he's one of your favorite filmmakers if not your favorite with Star Wars just coming out um this conversation just came out of nowhere I think we were talking about being mis- misunderstood and how you can't just rate a movie and then walk away and say, that's how I feel about it definitively forever. Um, you got to let things age. And then when you look at George Lucas, his contribution to cinema, but also, you know, what he's done recently as well, what he, what he's produced, you know, he's still giving to the medium and that's, that's not as appreciated as it should be. Um, he's a true auteur in every sense of the word. And, uh, it's one of those, like we, we said it off mic earlier that he, he is the goal. He's the dream. He's the destination. He's the silhouette for all filmmakers, indie, and in the industry to aspire to be, to create a franchise, to create original IP, to make a billion dollar, to make a billion dollars at the box office and then cash out. You know, and we, it's we're in a weird society where, you know, we reward people for selling out nowadays. Back in my day, it was like a sell out. You know, now it's like if you can do that, good on you. That's what the whole, you know. Um, yeah. Silicon Valley uh, investor, all that shit is all about us, is cashing out on ideas, right? And George was able to do that. So in a way, he got out of the system, but what he left behind was an entirely new infrastructure. And I don't see this collapsing in my lifetime, but those are my closing thoughts, man. This was a very illuminating interview, man. And I'll go ahead and let you take the wheel and then we'll close out. Yeah, so <clears throat> I'm really glad the interview uh, hit because, like, I always felt you you didn't give like Lucas his due a little bit, and maybe you still don't, but at least you now you understand why I like him as much as I do. And secondly, that last part, I guess it just hit me right now, even though I just heard that interview this morning, when he said that editing hasn't gone anywhere in the last hundred years, and he wants to see where he takes it, got me kind of excited in the sense that I hope he really does do something again. And I hope he fulfills that promise because if he does, I don't, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> I, but that was really cool hearing that right now where he was like, I'm going to go do something new with editing. I hope um, he but, does. I hope he does. But yeah, that's what he does. That's, he made a career doing that. Him and Cameron. Him and uh, Cameron. A couple of other guys. But, but, but those two for me are like, you know. Those are the dudes. <laughs> you know, uh, what you said about giving George Lucas his due, he deserves his due for sure. Um, I will say that he's just in a tough spot of being in the generation of a filmmaker um, that he that he was, that, you know, his contemporaries were just more prolific, <clears throat> Scorsese, than him, you know? And I, it's a shame, you know? Um, I don't think Scorsese ever, ever made a sequel, but he's made some classics, you know? And I guess they just never rated with nerds. They just never connected with him or something where he never felt compelled to make his own trilogy or spinoffs or franchises. And I don't even think Scorsese has done a franchise. He's adapted books, but I don't think he's ever, you know, that doesn't interest him. And so, man, George is such oh, yeah. a, 
self-hating populist. You know, it's so it's so strange. Uh, I've never seen a creator that is that that has to live with that conundrum more so than him. Usually they they step away, but he couldn't. That's all he's had against them, you know, like is he's side by side with Spielberg. He's side by side with Coppola, with with Scorsese. That's that's a tough spot. But it's like CM Punk, when he came out on the scene, he was the superstars were Triple H, Shawn Michaels, Batista, Undertaker, all at their prime, you know, and Punk was a superstar, but he was just going to be outshined, you know, and then John Cena got the torch and then he was outshined, you know, Um, and I kind of feel like. George Lucas is Bret Hart sandwiched in between two generations. And, you know, the new style that you see, like an AEW, New Japan, that, that's a Bret Hart style. You don't have Chris Jericho, Chris Benoit, Eddie Guerrero, and all these, this new wave of professional wrestling without Bret Hart. You know, he's, he's the catalyst. He, it was like the, the second wave, this new Big Bang. And I will give George Lucas that credit. He deserves it, man. Thank you so much for, for coming on my show. Um, we did it. I'm proud of you, man. I got to have you on again. And uh, this is the first time I've ever done this. So if you've made it this far and you listen to this entire podcast, tweet JR Molina. Where can they find you on the internet? And uh, that way they can let you know that they they, they finished this whole thing. (laughs) Well, first of all, thank you. It's one of my favorite interviews. One of the best best interviews about filmmaking, in my opinion. Uh, You can find me at Juan Royal Molina on Twitter or Instagram. I have the same handle for both. And uh, yeah, let me know because it's, it's great. <laughs> awesome, brother. I love you. Take care. Love you too. And uh, have a great one, man. We'll talk to you soon. You too. See you.